You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! is up i'm doc coil this is the x-man podcast i will be your host today hope everyone's doing all right it's been a kind of crazy week for myself and um i kind of been off social media you know i delete off my phone and kind of focus on other things it's a weird thing because i think there's elements of it that are immediately you kind of feel better but then but that kind of FOMO thing is always kind of there. It's interesting. And you kind of feel like you're missing out on a conversation <laughs> about other things. So I'll kind of, you know, I chimed in a little bit on Twitter today and immediately all that, all the normal stuff is, is, is happening. <laughs> and, you know, I got a little debate about vaccines and, or like vaccine distribution and, where should you be required to have a vaccine and not? And uh, I don't know, this idea of freedom always co- comes up. And I don't know, it's it's a very interesting concept to me because I, I think Americans specifically, that idea or value seems to kind of dominate everything. And it's probably the most consistent value that we kind of put above everything else. And you hear about it clearly in the last week and a half. So with the mass shootings with right to bear arms, second amendment you have with the vaccine, people go, well, it's my personal right not to put X into my body. And, uh, you know, and of course the, the battle over free speech has been very, very much in the, in the zeitgeist for last, I don't know, four or five, six, seven years. And I don't know, it's, it's something I, I think about because I don't know if people, it's weird that freedom means different things to different people, right? To some people, having 50 guns means freedom. To some people, being able to say the most awful things they can say in an online forum is freedom. For some people, it's smoking weed or whatever uh it means a lot of different things to to different people and i always thought i was like in 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 some ways i feel like i don't know if that's you know for me i've always thought about freedom to me is like i can get up and go 
to Amsterdam tomorrow, right? Just pick up and go. That's kind of freedom to me, just the ability to to live, um, I don't know, just to kind of do what you want. <laughs> I guess maybe do, smoke a weed and do all that, I guess that is, that is do, doing, doing what you want. Uh, but I guess not being tethered down, that's, that's something that has always felt like freedom to me. But I think what people don't realize is that, you know, this, uh, this guy, the amazing atheist, I watch some of the stuff sometimes and he was, he, he brought up a good point where he was like, people believe in freedoms, not freedom, you know, in that essentially what we value as freedom for us is what we're into, but we're not necessarily always into the idea of what other people are for. And, uh, I thought he had a, I thought he had a good point, but I think the the real key to remember is that is when freedoms conflict, right? So if I'm Mr. Vaccine guy and I say, I want to go to places where people are vaccinated and maybe that's the, uh, the policy at a particular place. And someone will say, well, I have the freedom not to put that in my body. I'm like, okay. But then again, do I have the freedom to go somewhere and not and feel unsafe or, or be exposed, right? Those are kind of conflicting freedoms. One of the big ones is the, the gay wedding cake scenario, right? Uh, if a gay couple goes to a cake, a bakery that is owned by Christians and they say, well, this is my freedom of religion, not to bake a cake for a gay wedding. So I don't believe in that versus their civil rights, right? So you get two things kind of going against each other. And I don't think people think about this that often. And right, like, and so what we end up doing is really getting hyped up into the idea that you're losing your freedoms, right? Because that's how you kind of get people galvanized. You make it like a, a, a key issue. And the funny thing, I, I, we talk about the freedom of speech thing, which is, like I said, most people don't get it. I mean, it's about the, the government stopping you from speaking or being locked up. But nine t- out of 10 times when people bring it up, that's not, it's not the government. It's like a company firing you or getting kicked off a social media thing. And I'm like, if you were to rewind the, rewind the clock, you know, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, what did your freedom of speech really get you? What, what could you do with it? You could, I guess you could write a book, but then you need to get it published. I mean, printing press ain't, ain't been around that long maybe 500 years or something like that. I mean, you could get on a literal soapbox and yell. <laughs> I mean, how many people could listen there? I mean, until they invented loudspeakers at the turn of the century, that's when you could speak to an, uh, you know, an arena or something. So there was real kind of limitations on what that even meant, right? So the idea, hey, I can go in the town square and talk shit about the king, even though we didn't have a king, but let's, let's say the president, right? I could go in the town square, talk shit about the president and then no one could lock me up. Right. But now we have, in a sense, we have more freedom of speech than ever. Right. Because we have the biggest megaphone. If I say something that catch captures people, it will get spread, reposted and will go viral. And all of a sudden this thing I said is being viewed by millions of people. So it's, it's the most freedom we've ever had because it can, it actually can have the most impact. So it's kind of odd to some degree that it's also the time when people feel like they have the least amount of freedom, which is kind of strange. 
so well, I guess what I'm saying is I totally get the idea that back in the day, you could be having an off-color conversation with your friends and it, generally and you could say politically uncorrect things and there, there really wouldn't be consequences for the most part. And now there are consequences, but yet you're, we're saying things in public spaces. We're put, as I said a few episodes back, we're snitching on ourselves. It's almost this thing of like, you're given the most freedom, but I think sometimes when you have the most freedom, you also should be the most responsible. And I don't think we really think about it that way. I think we really go, no, I need to have, there needs to be no limitations. It needs to be kind of this Mad Max, (laughs) lawless wasteland kind of, kind of thing. And, and listen, that's, that's true. I think to, to a certain degree, the, the more freedom there is, the more danger there is. They kind of go hand in hand and you have to kind of understand that those things go together. Right. So when you're, when you go, listen, how many people died in this mass shooting, even though, you know, there's a little bit of a statistical thing that doesn't really back up that that's the biggest problem. I just think they have the biggest impact because they're the craziest events, but it's, it's mainly just, you know, there's, they say 40,000 people a year die in America from shootings, whether that's suicide, what have you. Uh, and we just say that's acceptable, that the freedom itself is worth all of that destruction. And it's just interesting because we're just the only country in this uh, Western country that tolerates that, or only wealthy country that tolerates that. So it gives you an idea about our values, that the freedom is more important than the deaths or the dangers. And I think that's, that's a fascinating thing. It's a very, it's a very revealing thing. And you could say the same thing if you're, I don't want to get vaccinated, but, or, or I'm going to be angry if I'm not allowed into these places, I should be able to endanger you. My freedom of movement is more important than your freedom from getting sick. And then now what are we, you know, over 500,000 dead, how many sick, how much damage. And so it's just, so you have to realize that the freedom itself will have certain impacts. And listen, I think you can go with that, right? Let's say we legalize drugs, right? We know there's going to be a certain impact in that, that we have to deal with, you know? So it's, it's an exchange and everything's like that, right? If uh, we wanted zero car deaths and we wouldn't let anyone drive, right? But we, it's an exchange and I don't know. I think, but I think the idea that if you tell people they're losing their freedom so much, then they be they become obsessed with it. And I think that's where I, the problem I have with it is the obsession over a particular freedom. When you're actually in the gun thing, it's like there's a gun for every man, woman, and child in this country. I mean, they've won the battle. They have all the guns, but they're so afraid they're going to lose it. It's like it's not. The battle is not in touch with the reality. Like, dude, you won. You got you got 83 guns in your house. Like, I think you're doing all right. But it's like, but they're coming. I'm like, well, I mean, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but so far, you you got it. I mean, if I was going to go after somebody, I probably wouldn't go after you <laughs> if you got 87 guns, right? Uh, and so it's, in a sense, I, I think it just misses the point that we're just in a different age. And being obsessed with it, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I haven't wrapped this up too tightly, <laughs> but it's just something I've been thinking about. What is freedom? Which freedoms are important to you?
What's what what matters more, right? What's what outcome is worth having that freedom? I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but it's it's different for all of us. But I do think being overly obsessed with certain particular freedoms more than others, when maybe you have more, you're utilizing that right in a more freer way than you ever have, but you're being told that it's being taken away from you. It's really strange. It's really strange. I don't know. Things to ponder. Uh, listen, guys, I don't have a sponsor this week, uh, but that's all right. Sometimes it's good to just take a week off, get right into the interview. But if you would like to sponsor the show, just shoot me an email at the xmanpodcast at gmail.com. Got a couple great guests coming up. As I mentioned, I have Yane Virmin from Children of Bodom. I believe the first interview since uh, the great Alexi Laiho passed. And I also have V-Man, the bassist from Slipknot, coming up on the show, which is very cool. I didn't want to jinx it, but that is coming up as well. And so I'm working on some stuff. But, but yeah, so just hit me up, drop in the DMs. I know I'm not really on social media, but I might, I'll, I'll check in. I'll eventually get to it. Just hit, just hit me up if you want to sponsor the show. So we have an excellent guest today, someone I've been meaning to speak with for a very long time, someone I've known for a very long time, and uh, his name is Ash Avildsen, excuse me, and he owns Sumerian Records, Sumerian Management. He's been a booking agent. He is a film director and writer and actor. He's been a singer of a metalcore band. He's a real, he's an entrepreneur, he's a visionary, um, he's someone who has just accomplished so much, uh, and we've had the opportunity to work together in the past, and you know, he's an East Coast guy, came West, so we, we have that in common, and he's just very inspiring because he keeps doing things and expanding into different realms that you just wouldn't expect, and, it, and that type of ambition and drive for me personally, is is very inspiring, and you know, because I'm the type of person who's always looking to do more and do better and grow. So we go pretty deep in this. It's a it's it's a longer one, but it, he's done so many things. I felt it had to be that long to kind of really get to a lot of this stuff, and and we probably still missed <laughs> so much stuff because, like I said, he has his hand in so many different avenues when it comes to entertainment and business and everything but he's the man and has an incredible story so please enjoy my conversation with the awesome ash abildson but uh just in general how how, how are you doing during the uh you know the end, maybe are we at the end of the pandemic or we, the, the, we can see the uh okay, we're definitely not at the beginning <laughs> well you know it's, it's the beginning of the end can we can we yeah you know in a good way i think yeah no 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 definitely 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 you're sure but um i want to go back back all right to the to the back way back machine uh to when we met and you were playing in a band called reflux singing straight up hardcore metalcore vocals like you had all the moves i was watching some 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 video footage and i was like yo this dude you had the sideburns which is like i did, I did have the fucking sideburns man i look back no, these, it, was, it was a it was a moment in time man they were they were in vogue back then what can i say well well i say you were looking good okay you you know you're you were definitely like good looking front man for for a metalcore band which i was i was feeling i was like all right ash looking good he had the moves 
Um, and I want to say the first time we played together was the show you booked uh, was the in Virginia. I forget the the town, but it was the Atreyu, God forbid, Darkest Hour Under Oath tour. Oh, yeah. Buena Vista, Virginia. And it was the only show on the tour. I remember I got Nick Storch to to sell it to me. It was the only show on the whole tour that was in a legion hall. And a trade was like blown up because I remember they were, it was like a shell shock because they were like, wait, we're back in a legion hall again because they were, you know, that's when they were just really, really taking flight. I think probably all the other shows on that tour were really nice, like venues and whatnot. I mean, it wasn't, I was, it was just clubs. We were doing, you know, five, anywhere from three to like six, 700 clubs. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, what's so funny. I, I think you're right. At, in the moment in time, that was like the most hyped like tour that no, I, I, I that, wanted to like. The show was sold out though. Don't. Yeah, but it wasn't that big. It was just the the momentum was big, but the clubs weren't as big, right? Yeah, but the, I mean, I remember. So we did that tour of the right kind of at the end of our Dirk termination cycle, but before Gone Forever came out, and we had grinded and we we had just busted our ass and we were like kind of blown away because they had kind of came out of nowhere and they were like 10 times as, as big as we were in like, you know, in, in, in no time. And it was real illuminating to kind of how big that scene was getting. And obviously they were a band. I, I would say like they stood to benefit from like bands like Poison the Well and 18 Visions kind of laying the groundwork for them to kind of walk into that role. And then, you know, they just, they they had their shit together, <laughs> but anyway, enough about enough about Atreyu. Um, so around this time, was that before Reflux had signed with Prosthetic? Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to look. When was that tour? I I want to say it might have been right. Oh, three. Let's see. It it was three. Your summer. Yeah, we we signed in. Well, I reckon came out October two thousand four. I think so. It would have been, oh, I can't find it. Where was that? I tell you, God forbid, toward Darkest Hour, right? Under Oath? Yeah. Yeah, 2003. So I think that was right before. Yeah. We were well, still in time. Well, so so clearly you were, you were booking shows at this time. You were in this band. And for people who don't know, Reflux was the band uh, Tosin, Abasi, what was in kind of got his start that's how I, I i met him um where was your focus around this time were you trying to be a singer in a band were you trying to be a you know a promoter were you this is where you book uh working as a booking agent then or how you not taking that step yet yeah i was booking i mean i just knew i wanted to to do music full-time and yeah i was super passionate about playing in a band but i knew that you know, if I had to be weighed down by a regular day job, um, it was going to be way too hard to tour and, and do our thing. So I was in my early 20s and just started figuring out, you know, all the different ways to to add value to the scene and also to be able to make a few dollars from it. So, yeah, I was booking shows all over D.C., Maryland, Virginia. You know, a lot of the clubs either didn't allow moshing or they were like 18 or 21 plus um, or they didn't really understand like the new wave of, of heavy music. So I was kind of just at the forefront of that in that area. And then, yeah, I was learning 
how to book tours and trading shows with different bands along like the East coast. And yeah, just, just learn the promoter game and the booking agent game while also, you know, playing in the band, which is good. Cause that's, you know, outside of like management, that's kind of like the three main things. Like you got the person booking the show, you got the person promoting the show, and then you got the person playing the show. Um, yeah. yeah. Just kind of learn the three sides of the triangle, I guess. Well, no, it's, it's, it's funny because we always kind of talk about, on the industry side of things, right? There's no, there's no school for this shit. I mean, I, I, I think there are, maybe there are classes or I, I don't know, but the best teacher obviously is firsthand experience. Uh, yeah. And I don't know what piece of DNA makes someone like you, which is very similar to, J- to Jamie Joster, who was singing in a yeah. band, also was booking shows. I mean, I think that <laughs> that would just feel for me just like so much responsibility and like you're obviously in a sense you're a gambler right when you're especially a diy booker i mean was that scary or i mean what what was the entry point what what gave you the confidence think you could actually be successful with with that or did you you just start small and kind of take it from there the first so i i put on like local band shows and i would just book like bands and at first i started off as like a local band oh you know playing jacks and pre-selling tickets and stuff um and then i booked local shows that were successful and then actually i remember the first two national acts i ever booked it was with through finberg at uh in baltimore one was a shutdown show um and he oversold me and i booked it at a, a new club and it was a too big of a club and then that same weekend he um, I think it was the same weekend. There was an E-Town Concrete show, and I thought I had the only date in the area. And he told me I did, and I booked it at the old auto bar. And then after I booked it, he they got announced like four days later or something on on the Super Bowl of Hardcore in DC. I'm like, well, I'm gonna get killed. Like everyone's gonna go see him there instead of my little club show. And so I remember I took a hit on both shows, and I was like but I learned very fast. I'm like, okay, there's conflicts with the dates I booked and I'm getting overcharged given the circumstances, but you know, both shows drew people and I started to learn it. And then from there I started being able to book other national acts and just kind of fine tuned. And then I, I figured out, you know, look, it, it is gambling. I mean, it's, it's almost like stock market. Like you think that is that going to hit next week? Like, is that thing hot? You know, it's, um, it's you just got to know like what what the demand is for something and are people interested and excited and you know it was a different time too because like there wasn't i mean there was the internet of course but there it wasn't what it is now like flyering was still a big thing you know like what record label you were on really carried weight i remember i remember like you know funny because now you know the the brand's been completely destroyed but victory records man when in that era if you were on victory i remember i would have local bands want to play a show and kids like the diehard kids who were really into the scene they'd show up just because a band was on victory because it's like that's how meaningful that brand was in the early 2000s i mean but it was like that for 10 you know damn near 10 years before that too when you go back to yeah paper Earth Crisis, uh, Snapcase. I mean, you go down the you go you know you go down the list. It seemed like every important band. And then when they kind of broke out into the emo side, then it went completely nuts. But uh, but anyway, 
so let's talk a little bit about reflux um so you were you were doing the band like i said the band got a got a record deal uh i know you did some touring i think you did you guys do that tour strap young lad yeah that was actually a really great tour for us because we all have the same management it was strapping young lad misery signals agony scene and reflux and i remember because we all the same management so misery signals and agony scene called our management and they were all bummed out on the tour because they weren't going over well with the metal kids and not all of the the metal core and scene kids were coming because of the ticket prices and so i remember i called our management and they're like, hey, are you calling about the tour? We're sorry, it's going like this. And we're like, what are you talking about? It's the greatest fucking thing we've ever done because we were getting over on the metal kits for strapping because it was so progressive and Tosin and Evan and Vinny were just such wizards on their instruments. And then the metalcore kids were getting over because we were still like friendly to that scene. And I was like, I appealed more to them. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. This is like the perfect tour for us because that was the whole vision that we could, we could, do well with like the scene kids and you know the victory and eulogy ferret trust kill world but then like the metal blade century media nuclear blast metal fans like this too and so they remember they were like wait you're serious you guys are enjoying this we're like yes thank you thank you so much like all these years of hard work is finally paying off on like a real tour for us so yeah that was one of the some of the best um some of the best you know memories of, of touring was that tour we, we were just riddled with problems, though, on, on transportation, man. Vans catching on fire. I know about Fucking that. tires blowing out. Not only did the tire blow out, the tire blew out and then wrapped around the axle. So you couldn't. It's like, what are the odds of this? Like, you had to get someone with, like, a fucking saw to come cut the thing off. Like, it wasn't <laughs> like, oh, flat tire, change it. We can make the show. It's like, no, this thing wrapped around you like a death grip. I mean, just unbelievably bad luck when it came to transportation issues and all right, the border, man. I remember going into Canada and, you know, we're an interesting looking group, man. Like, you know, we got a Nigerian guitar player, a Vietnamese drummer, a bass player who's covered in like just, you know, all black uh, tribal tattoos, but actually tribal done in a really cool way. Not like, you know, what normally you think of tribal tattoos. And then me and I remember we went into Canada. They stopped us coming in four hours went through all of our stuff and then we drive 15 feet to the other side and they did the exact same thing and we we're at the border for eight hours and we, we missed loading i'm like couldn't you just talk to them they just did that. i mean it was all we just had the worst luck when it came to like the practical natures of of touring but um yeah that tour was it was one of the best memories for sure well i'd say it's like clearly Looking and by the way, God forbid, also a group of characters going through any any border would always get tons of shit. Uh, and I'm like, do you realize if we were smuggling heroin or some shit, they wouldn't send us. They would send some inconspicuous like nuclear family through here, <laughs> looking like Ozzy and Harriet. That's how they, it would pick <laughs> us lunatics to come here. <laughs> it's so so idiotic. Um, but no, I I think it's actually the interesting part of that is because you did it yourself and started working more on the industry side of things that how much that probably informs your ability to connect with bands and understand the actual kind of minutia and the everyday like struggle right like you change tires you slept on the floors you you know you you know you did the thing i don't did you guys ever do that put up the uh sign at the oh yeah at the merch table you know to stay (laughs) 
uh so I, I imagine that was pretty informative when you kind of started to transition out of that yeah i man, some of the funny parts sometimes so with doc's talking about it you put a sign at your merch table to try and get a free place to crash you're not sleeping in the van you don't have money for a hotel and man sometimes you would luck out you would get like the nicest house i remember the august burns red kids would put us up they would book our shows in lancaster and they they had jb had a really nice place and we were always like oh man like his parents are so nice this is so great but sometimes we'd end up at a place where we'd be like texting each other hey like who's gonna like pretend like something has gone wrong and we got to leave because like there's no way we can sleep in here this is like it was just morbid like the carpet clearly has had 10 years of of god knows what just this place where i was like i'm not going to be able to like you know or, or we'd be like hey then we'd be actually fighting over who gets to sleep in the van instead of sleeping in like whatever like pigsty but it was just luck of the draw man sometimes you got a great place and sometimes you're like we should have never showed up here um I, I, and then you had the other places where you feel obligated to talk to them which like yo I, we got to like leave at seven in the morning i need to pass out i know this is like the big night that the band's sleeping at your house but i can't stay up till 5 a.m hanging and drinking and playing games like we got to be asleep as soon as we get in so yeah, but it, it, touring really teaches you, especially if you're like the business guy in your band. Like, I mean, it's like going to special ops boot camp for how how to navigate dealing with different personalities and people in different places. And I mean, it's the best school for like, I mean, so mu- there's so much sociological uh, experience you get touring in a band and being like the person that deals with everyone, whether it's the promoter the tour managers, the people you're sleeping at. So I, I'm very grateful that I was able to learn all that. Cause I do think it played a big part um, in my trajectory in the business. Yeah. I think my, my favorite part about that is the kind of cultural education. I think if you're, you know, some maybe big city kind of elitist type person, mm-hmm. and then you get to go around and play all down South and middle America and it contextualizes kind of the humanity of those people, you know, like we're so caught up in like these culture wars and us versus them. And it like, I don't know, for so- someone like me, it's like it, you'll hear people talk shit about, oh, those people over there. And it's like, no, they're, they're, they're just people, man. Like, <laughs> you know, or, and I think it goes from the inverse. If you're someone who's a little more nationalistic and then you get to go overseas and you get to meet people from Europe and, and actually get to kind of, understand a little bit and I fit in me every time I travel travel to Europe or go overseas I feel like I learn a little more I get a little more connected with what's going on and it's it's just a snapshot right like being in a town for a day doesn't really give you a great education but it at least gives you kind of a little a little bit of a a window into that that's something I, I try to appreciate and because it's you know, we're lucky in that, in that respect, we like it's a tour. Um, so what happened, I, I think as far as I know, Reflux kind of, after that strapping tour, see, things seem to kind of wind down a bit. So what happened after the strapping tour, we had a headliner set up and it was, and we it hadn't played yet. And it was looking really good. And then Josh Klein, the booking agent, calls and says, Hey, I'm interested in booking you guys and I want to put you on this all this rem- all the remains tour. So I canceled our headliner. We were about to do the all the remains tour. And then all the remains got like a kill switch or a Lamb of God tour. And then their tour got blown out. 
because they took the support tour instead of headlining. And then I had to rebook our headliner. And that last tour was actually Reflux, Ed Gain, August Burns Red. And then August Burns Red singer, I believe, quit right before. We had a really cool tour poster. I remember. I wonder if I could find that online. It was Reflux, Ed Gain, August Burns Red. And then August Burns Red singer quit right before the tour started. And so they dropped. And then it was us and Ed Gain. And it did well. And I remember we were doing like, you know, three to 500 tickets a lot of places. And I think the tour ended in Nashville at the Muse. And then it was basically like, hey, what do we want to do? And the idea was we were going to we were going to still uh, put out the next record. But um, Tosin and Vinny wanted to go study music at the Atlanta Institute of Music. And in that time, I moved to L.A. I was living in Venice. Evan, our bass player, had already studied a bunch of music. So he just wanted to get back to work. So Evan started playing bass in a band that I booked that um, used to open for Reflux as well called Animosity. And then in that year, like I took a job at TKO and I basically merged my like bedroom booking agency, which was doing really good. EE booking into TKO started Sumerian. And then Tosin and Vinny became just even more next level progressive madness, uh, you know, musical maestro geniuses. And it was kind of a, a scenario where I think Tosin was more interested in doing animals as leaders. And I was at a point where I was like, we could do this next record, but like between the success I was having as an agent and Sumerian and the fact that like, I truly, I didn't have a natural genetic gift with clean singing, like so many of the greatest singers do. And I just knew that. And I was like, I'm great at screaming. I can shout. I'm good at writing lyrics and vocal patterns and I'm good at writing melodies, but I just can't bust them out with ease. I was like, if I can't nail these notes, the way Tosin can just go on the guitar, like I'm not trying to be the weakest link. Like, yeah. I, 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 and so it was kind of like a combination of me accepting the reality unless I really wanted to be a screamer the whole time. But I was like, you know what? Do I want to go back and live on the road? I got this good setup. I'm basically able to play in, you know, 10 different bands at once by being, you know, a label or an agent. And, and that was kind of it. And so animals as leaders actually operated out of the reflux record deal on prosthetic for their next two records. I was literally the reflux deal that they basically, um, you know, inherited or took over or whatever. Um, and so that was it. And then I started booking animals as leaders because me and Tosin were still best of friends. I was like, fuck it. I'll be your guys' agent and help where we can. We actually managed them for a little bit at Sumerian. And then when they signed to Sumerian, we got out of the management thing. So we'll just be the record label. Um, and yeah, that was kind of it, man. Like we just, we never put out the next record and it's probably, you know, it's, it's been a good, I think everything is as it should be in that regard, you know? Yeah. So what was the genesis of Sumerian as a, as a record label? Where, where did the idea come from? What was your hopes at least early on for what it was what you wanted it to be so i had been on a label obviously with prosthetics so i had the experience of being on that side of the table and even as a as a label even being on a label you still didn't that didn't guarantee you you were going to get good tours or you were going to have a good booking age yeah. like back then and it might even be the case now i don't know i've been out of the booking game for a minute but like it was harder to get a good booking agent than it was to get a record deal. 
like you could get a deal, but that doesn't mean like you got six shows coming out. I mean, there were a lot of bands. I remember all the time I was getting pitched bands on good labels that didn't have agents. And I was like, you know, I was very selective in, in who I wanted to build from the ground up because the hardest stuff is, is booking a band from a hundred bucks and then getting them to the point where they can sell thousands of tickets. You know, it's easy to book some band that's worth thousands and thousands of tickets. Anyone, everyone will fight over them. Everyone will poach them, you know, but like taking them from the garage and getting them to like, even just like a house of blues level, that's, that's a lot, you know, that's very, that's You're real agent work. Um, so I was, I, basically what happened was I realized that I realized what I could bring to the table as an agent. And most importantly, I was working with a wave of bands that didn't even have deals and were drawing a bunch of tickets. I was their agent. So I was drawing hundreds and hundreds of tickets. Um, some of them had never even toured before because of the power of my space. And so when I was going out to labels to say, hey, I'm booking this band. I want to get a label partner. They either didn't understand the music because it was this new wave of metal or they were offering them very draconian deals. And I was like, the most important thing here outside of the band being good is for them to be on good tours because there wasn't, you know, it's not like there's radio and MTV and all these things that were going to break underground metal and hardcore bands. So I basically, funny enough, Tony Victory, based on my credibility of from being an agent and from Reflux, like I was able to get a distro deal through victory um which wasn't a lot of money i mean it's a lot of money on the street but not in a record label world it was like 17 grand and then i had a actually guy that was my manager and attorney gave me a credit card as a minority partner and said hey here i believe in the vision here's a credit card so we could at least like get tour support and things for the bands we were signing mm -hmm. and yeah basically like it was the faceless and stick to your guns. And it was based on like, instead of going to a label that either doesn't understand the music or is offering you a pretty crummy deal, I'll give you like a 50, 50 deal. And we'll just do one album and try it. So it was super artist friendly. And based on the relationships I had with these bands is from being their booking agent, they trusted me and we kind of just got started and I wanted to create, like a culture with a label and this is not to diss any of my peer labels at the time or now. Um, Cause some of them, you know, do a similar vibe, but like I wanted to really have like a culture with a label that was like by artists for artists. And there was like a family spirit because I wasn't like some random older guy in an office. I was like, yo, I've lived the life you're living in and out. And I'm also an artist and let's just figure out a new cool way to, to do the whole record label thing. Um, and then, yeah, it kind of just took off. I was, I was fortunate to have, you know, two really good bands to build it around. Um, and the Faceless and Stick to Your Guns obviously are wildly different musically, visually, everything. But they were both underground. Um, and that's what kind of set up the diversity of the label as well as the launch of it to becoming a brand that kids paid attention to because um, our bands were buzzing and they were kind of, you know, at the forefront of the new wave and their respective genres. So I've had guys like, you know, Carl Severson on the show, Mike Gitter. And one of the things I kind of always try and hone in on is this unique skill set. I think of guys like that and someone like you, where you're essentially trying to find the diamond in the rough, right? Whether it's, 
a band of book, whether it's a band of sign, and try and figure out what is the DNA of an artist or a group that will be successful and kind of get to a certain um, get to a certain level. What like when you're looking for an artist, and maybe it's different then than it is now because obviously you've kind of moved into these different plateaus. Um, what do you really what do you look for in an artist? Maybe and maybe even kind of or I you know give an insight to what what you were looking at back then, or maybe see that how the, how that has changed. Um, I mean, there, there's no magical like short answer to that. Really, there, there's there's usually three different things. This, this is actually built into this uh, no cover music competition series that we're filming um, later this month at the Troubadour. Um, the three main things that the judges in the show are going off of are uh, we call it the ops, the special ops OPS. It's originality, presence, and songcraft. Uh, to me, those are probably still the three things that are most important. Um, originality is obviously, are they unique and original with their sound? Uh, their presence is basically the it factor. You know, do, do they have star power? Do they have a really, you know, um, amazing live show? Are they compelling? Are they compelling when they're on stage? Um, and then songwriting or songcraft is basically like, how are their songs? And yeah. very rarely you'll get ones that have all three. You know, you're lucky if you get one that has two out of the three good. Um, and sometimes it's only one, but that one is so strong that, like you said, you see the diamond in the rough. And so you start to work with them. But those are probably the three main things, originality, presence and the song itself. Um, do you feel like you have a unique gift for that or are you just kind of you're like, that's my job, so I have to figure it out? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I I definitely have. um yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's gen, I don't know if it's genetic. I don't know how I have it, but I have ears and a spidey sense. And yes, and if I was to go through all of the other groups that I was in on early that I didn't sign or that I used to book, um, you know, it's look nobody bats a thousand. And there's plenty of groups I've worked with that didn't work out, whether as an agent or a label. But I have a pretty good batting average. And yeah, I mean, you can go through the list. Like you look at Bring Me the Horizons first two tours. They were tours that I brought them over on the first time they ever came to America. I was also talking to their manager at the time for signing them and um, the money that they needed, which right nowadays I could have done no problem. Back then it was a lot of money because we weren't even really profitable as a label yet because um, we were constantly reinvesting any of our money that we were making from the label just back into it to help the artists grow and to sign more artists. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a long list, nothing more. I mean, there's so many, I mean, you guys, I, I had a deal in on bad wolves and you know, uh, you, <laughs> I listen to pretty much any interview you do with pot with podcasts. I, I just, I love your story. I think you're really interesting. So I've, I've, I've heard that a, a few times and we were, you know, the, the funny thing about the bad wolves thing is, before we we shopped around to a few labels before we had a music video and we got turned down and as soon as we dropped the video for learn to live then like we had every then then every label wanted to sign us it was pretty pretty in, in, interesting thing uh <laughs> with bad wolves but you know it's that's a whole other story about how, how bad wolves kind of kind of i was the oh me and lorenzo we were the only label and a bunch of my staff came we were the only label that came and saw you guys on that Monday night at the Galaxy Theater or whatever it's called, Observatory, Santa Ana. No. 
Yeah. First, that was literally our first show. Yeah. The first, the, the first B Dub show. Um, so I, w- I want to talk about. We will talk a little more battles maybe later in the, in the interview. But uh, <laughs> I, I want to talk about that era uh, between the you know the beginning of Sumerian, your knee deep booking in in TKO, and our our mutual great friend uh, Lorenzo Antonucci. Uh, he kind of put he hipped me to a lot of the work you were doing at that time, uh, and also kind of how you were helping to kind of curate and cultivate this new scene. And I and I would put, and it was really, I and it, this kind of comes up a lot on, on the show because it speaks to like how the scene evolves in really these short periods of time. Because I, you know, God forbid, came to prominence in this wave of the new American heavy metal, new wave American heavy metal. And then right around that 2006, 2007, things started to bubble up in the in the underground and it was really deathcore coming up through that uh gent started to kind of come come through that and then you had this whole myspace thing really moving a lot of stuff and and we were trying to ask these questions right like does the myspace hype will that actually equal real world commerce right will that sell records without sell tickets ultimately the answer to that was a definitive yes <laughs> uh it's the same thing now with tiktok dude i tell my staff tiktok's the new myspace yeah yeah well it's I, listen i just think it's great like i'm not a tiktok person um maybe i'll eventually adopt it but i think we all benefit from any big social media where the focus is around music because yeah. because we've had so many so many of the new technologies have taken us away from music, right? If I'm playing video games, I'm, you know, maybe there's music there, but I'm focused on the video game. If I'm doing, watching Netflix for 25 hours, maybe. And so music has become this background noise thing where now it's kind of a little more in the forefront. So I think that's wonderful. And well, obviously we have to take advantage of that and, and, and pay attention to that. But Lorenzo's like, yo, he's like, yo. I mean, he, he was telling me about suicide silence before they took off. He he hit me to animosity. You got to check this out. And I was like, and I felt, you know, this was kind of a, a cardinal sin, I think, of where God forbid was at the time. And I was that time was just a little behind the times, a little bit not on, in the know. And, it's, and when you're an artist, you, you, you really have to be in the know. You can't let the next technology come along and you kind of miss the boat you have to be on on top of that uh you being someone you you were in the underground you were kind of on the ground with that um did you know that stuff was gonna happen those scenes were like the next big thing quote unquote or in many ways i feel like you kind of made that shit happen to in to some degree in my opinion yeah so i I, you know, honestly, the first time I really saw it was uh, it was really literally the first band we I started booking that was like a real band early, early on was Dying Fetus because they were death metal and then they had like hardcore breakdowns. And I was like, wow, this is they were cool, always you think. <laughs> they huh? were people, people. See yeah, that. they were before it was ever a thing. They were like oh. the ones. No, but there were a group of bands in like the nineties that yeah. were able deathcore bands like Pyrexia, internal bleeding, um, irate out of, out of New York. So people even got, there's early God forbid demos that we put deathcore, 
like back in like 96 and, sh- and shit like that. So it, it just kind of got, you know, these, these terms get kind of realigned and, and it yeah. became whatever the new version of that. But yeah, I think dying fetus was always that suffocation was always a little bit right. They always had those. Yeah. But then culturally the MySpace thing happened and really young kids who were getting into heavy music for the first time were starting at Deathcore, I remember when uh, I think it was on that that Samir or the Reflux headliner. I was just saying the last thing we did, Job for a Cowboy opened for us in Phoenix, and we were like, I remember they were called Job for a Cowboy, and we were all friends with them. I was friends with their manager, um, and they were a local band. And I made some joke on stage about because we were from DC. I was like, well, we got a gig for a Redskin or something, and um, we used to have a Washington Shredskins, uh, you know, merch item. I remember we had it. I was like, this is so funny. We were playing with a band called Job for a Cowboy because the Cowboys and Redskins is obviously a big NFL rivalry. And they gave us their EP, which I think was that Doom EP, which is originally going to be the first Sumerian release, even before Faceless. And I was booking them at the time. And we listened to it. We're like, man, this is kind of like funny with all of like the Brie Brie vocals and then they're going over breakdowns and samples. But then I remember like we were listening to it in the van and we were generally kind of laughing because it was like, there's like almost like just um just such a playful element to it. And then we kept listening to it. We caught ourselves like reciting some of the parts. And I was like, yo, I think, I actually think this is going to be like a thing. This is going to be like a thing. Kids are going to get into this. And then, yeah, that whole wave happened, man. Job for a Cowboy, Suicide Silence, Blood Runs Black, all those bands just, just took off um and i was yeah i was kind of like the main guy on the industry pioneering that scene um especially from a booking standpoint because a lot of these you know i was just i was in on it early and i was seeing how real it was and um and i remember i was trying to get like some of the bigger bands to like take them seriously like dude animosity suicide sounds all those bands we couldn't get looks with like the big bands. And I remember the first time, because Suicide, we were just headlining. And we were, and I was like, I booked them in every single, and props to Amanda Fiore, who actually booked their first tour under me, because um, we worked you know, together for many years, still do. And she was, at the time I had bigger stuff. And I was like, Suicide Silence is real, but you can book the first tour. Um, I think it was like All Shall Perish, like the City Nights Like These. But for a long time, everything we did was suicide was headlining because because uh, like the the older legit bands or whatever couldn't wrap their heads around it. So we headlined suicide in every major secondary tertiary village everywhere in America. And I remember I was like, I could tell I was I was under pressure to like deliver them a support tour. And I finally got it. It was un, I think it was unearthed. I don't remember the order, but it was Unearthed, Darkest Hour, and August Burns Red, I think, was the tour. And they went out there and just lit it on fire, man, as the first of four band with some ridiculous low fee. Um, and then from there, it was kind of off to the races. And I actually remember the definitive um, – there was a definitive moment when I was, like, leaving TKO and some things had gone down with, um, with uh, Suicide Silence and their manager, and I was – wrapped up in the whole thing and paul conmore was in there with channel zero there's a whole big kerfluffle of what was going on because the band was having some issues internally but i had them booked and granted it was not paid for enough they should have gotten more money but i had them booked for a hate breed cannibal corpse tour and i was like this is the perfect fucking tour for you guys i was like this is it 
I was like, and I was so pumped. I was like, there's no better band that can, it's probably, you know, going back to like, um, reflux doing the strapping young lad misery signals agony thing i'm like yo suicide science with hate and cannibal corpse perfect you're right down the middle you're gonna crush it for both audiences and then i i had the, the falling out with the manager and i stopped working uh with the band um not that i wanted to but the man there was a whole that's a whole other conversation but long story short they stayed at tko and tko pulled them off of the hate cannibal tour and put them on a megadeth tour and I remember going, that's the big fuck up. And they're like, and I was like, this is why the band, you know, cause no offense to Jerry club, but like, I was kind of always running point on the strategy with what they did on the road. Cause I was the booking agent. And I remember I saw that. And even after work, I told Jerry, I was like, dude, you're going to fuck this up, man. Like don't put them out with Megadeth. Hate breeding cannibals. Perfect. And they did the Megadeth tour and it, it did not go the way I think anyone wanted it to. Um, but yeah, back to the original question, that whole wave that was coming up, they were breaking on MySpace. You know, I, I give a lot of credit to Jerry as their manager. He was obsessively, compulsively working the MySpace with Suicide and getting fans to put the theme song on their pages and the music videos and everything. And, um, you know, Mitch was just a fucking larger than life rock star, man. It was just his. You want to talk about a guy with the it factor. It was just completely undeniable, you know, G girls wanted to fuck him. Guys wanted to be him. The oldest trick in the book. And he just lit every room on fire. I mean, it was just completely out of this world. Um, his presence and his, his charisma and his stage moves and the whole thing. He was, he's still to this day, undeniably by leaps and bounds, the best front man of that entire genre. Yeah. I mean, probably it's, it's him and then Ali Sykes. And then I don't even know. Well, Ali, I don't really consider deathcore. I know they kind of started that, but started that way. They did start that way, though. Yeah, it was very Black Dolly with breakdowns. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ollie for sure. I mean, they're the American and the British kings of it all. But um, as far as all the American bands, yeah, Mitch just smoked everybody. So around this time, or maybe, well, I don't know if I have my, my timeline right. Uh, <laughs> when did you start developing the uh, Summer Slaughter, Thrash and Burn, these types of uh, I guess, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of European style uh, indoor theater festivals. Uh, was that, was that the mindset? Were you kind of taking a note out of that kind of, because uh, they would, you know, they'd have these European tours like Persistence Tour, uh, Hell on Earth, uh, a, lot, a lot of more kind of hardcore metalcore type tours is, was that what kind of inspired uh, these types of, of kind of collective tours? Honestly, they were just inspired by when I would, I would, as a promoter on the East Coast, I would put multiple tours together sometimes if I could. Um, that was my favorite thing. If there were two tours coming through at the same time, like two four band packages, I'd be like, well, I don't want to split the draw because if I do one on Friday and one on Sunday, you know, if a kid's got to pay 15 bucks twice or he can pay 20 bucks once, I got a better chance of him coming all together. So, I started getting into that as a promoter and I realized the magic of it is that kids, you know, the bigger the lineup, the further someone will drive for it. Just simple science. Right. Um, and I was that fan as well. I drove to Woodstock 99. I, I, I traveled all the time for big shows. So I saw that happen as a promoter and I was like, there's a real thing here. Like you can pack these clubs again, but it, ha it you know, it's all in the packaging and the marketing. Like, it's got to be a sick lineup and people got to be excited about it. 
But I saw that happen. I mean, I did some things called shows. Uh, they were called like the show of the summer. We did it in like Jersey and, and Virginia. And it was Dylan. I mean, it was a big lineup, all the different subgenres, right? You had hardcore, metalcore, death, deathcore, screamo, emo, just, and we put it all together. Cause again, it, it all had this sense of being underground. Right. Um, and so when I saw that happen, I was like, I remember we did one called show of the summer in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I thought, you know, man, this would be cool if like six, 700 kids come and they just kept coming, man. They came from all over the place. I was like, where are these cars going to go? You know, forget about a, a capacity that the, the, the owner of the club was like, yeah, we got room, bring them in. And, you know, I didn't even know what it did. 14, 1500 people for you know, none of these bands that, that were on the show were doing those numbers. Yeah. Like, and it was really exciting because then it was elevating these bands because whoever was headlining it, as you know, it's like, you know, if, if God forbid headlines this event and there's 1,700 people there, well, guess what? Like, God forbid, just put up 1,700 tickets in Asbury Park or wherever. Um, so that was, that's how I saw it. And then I realized, again, as an agent trying to package and get people to take these bands seriously, like, we launched Summer Slot around Necrophagist. Um, and I was like, people don't realize how real this thing is. And I mean, I drove around and, you know, even their first tour, I was picking them up at the airport. Like me, me and my friends that were working for that, shout out to Chris Jocelyn. Um, he, I think he listens to all your podcasts. He was there picking them up at the airport with me. I remember we drove them to New England Metal Fest. We were scrambling to get their merch printed. We had a box of merch coming in. People were like ripping the merch off the cardboard box before we even had it set up, walking into the Palladium. I mean, this was like, he, he was like, I don't even know what the, describe him as when he first came but for people that are into prog and death metal I mean, he was this was like the second coming man um and i don't know whatever happened dude muhammad i love you brother wherever you are they just like went on still want a new eternal hiatus movie, but yeah he just disappeared what's that he just, he just went on like eternal hiatus yeah you know he he was he was far too overqualified to be just uh you know like a death metal guitarist and singer i mean he would he, he was like a, an engineer at like mercedes or bmw and was like incredibly intelligent and really well spoken for a guy that english was not his first language you know he was um doesn't always work turkish and, what's that it doesn't always work in the way like michael ackerfeld from opeth speaks english better than any american i've ever heard <laughs> you never know um so around this time uh but actually the, actually before i even, even say that the one thing about these tours was it seemed to be a bit of um an incubator to help grow the sumerian bands like you would kind of filter your own bands through there and and they in a sense sumerian and some of these tours kind of became uh part of the overall brand and you were able to kind of build build a scene for the Born of Osiris's and the Veilamayas and Faceless and bands bands like these. So I thought that was just really smart, and it just helped. It I you would see the thing was kind of cool about these tours. You'd see a band be the first band on right on on one year, and within a year or two, they're headlining the festival. You know, and that was a really cool process to see kind of take take shape. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the second year, 2007 was Black, I think it was Black Dolly Murder, Cataclysm, Vader. Um, but like Whitechapel and Born of Osiris were like the first two bands. 
when I want to say Whitechapel might have even opened that. And then, yeah, Whitechapel ended up, you know, becoming, you know, a headlining act as, as the years went on. But yeah, it, it really did like, it, it was a real platform for artists to, to, to grow. Bands were legitimately breaking off that tour. I mean, breaking relative to, you know, underground metal, but yeah, they were, they were breaking, man. It was, it was, it was really, really exciting. And everyone told me I was insane. I remember the first year of Summer Slaughter, everyone's like, 10 bands, Ash, you're ridiculous. Nobody wants to see 10 bands in a club. And I'm like, okay, holler at me in a few months. Let's see how this goes. And yeah, they were just, and the best part about that was Necrophages had never opened for anyone here before. And they were like, on, you know, they had a record on like Willow Tip and then um, Relapse, but like they were, <laughs> not only was it like a crazy idea of all these bands and clubs under a brand, but it was with another band that like, you know, similar to the Suicide Silence Magic for like, you know, Deathcore and, and MySpace, Necrophages was that for like legitimate super cred metal. And they'd never been here. They were just putting up these numbers. Nobody knew what to think of it. So that just added to the, to the <laughs> magic trick of how it all looked to the industry. Because, yeah, what a moment in time, man. <laughs> oh, it was awesome. So around this time is when you actually briefly started booking god forbid and yes this is kind of a funny funny story because <laughs> before you were our booking agent john finberg was our our booking agent and we basically fired john finberg because we felt like like ashes like he's the guy right now he's breaking bands he's revitalizing careers and we were going through this period of being a band from like a certain scene trying to exist and survive kind of the changing guard so it's kind of a difficult time for for the band and we saw what you were kind of doing for bands like sworn enemy what you were kind of doing for bands you know like were you booking sepultura at the time did you put that tour together There's, or were you just get I do, I think they were at TKO, but I didn't do it because of the lineup they were going for and the money. But I know but Sepultura was there. But I don't think I booked the Sepultura tour. I can't honestly remember, but I think it was Tom Hoppe. Okay. Um who also had, came out of that place and now is killing it. Shout out to Tom. He does the Bottle Rock Festival in Napa, which is like, you know, mini NorCal wine country Coachella. It's really, really successful. But anyway, so when we fired John, uh he literally like he this motherfucker was, was angry at me for like 10 years, you know, cursing my life, calling me a cocksucker in hopes I suck all the dicks in the world. <laughs> I mean, it it's it's still it's still kind of funny, even though it was a little it was a little hurtful. But um anyway, so we start working together and the first tour we we put we put together is this tour. It was like the Death Angel reunion kind of comeback tour. It was, I think, in Thrash We Trust. In Thrash We Trust, and it was a uh, Soylent Green. Um, was Arsis on? Light it? the City, I think, was light, on, light, right? Was it Arsis and Light the City? Yeah, it was the light, light the City, and we were pretty excited about the tour, but the tour did not do that well for, I think, what we were hoping. Like we had done a headline tour, like a year earlier, that more, more, more or less drew better. <laughs> And we weren't really sure, like, why it was. I mean, it was probably a lot of it had to do with God forbid it was kind of on the downswing. Death Angel hadn't quite, you know, they hadn't kind of, they was their comeback tour, but they almost, it took them like a record or two to kind of 
really kind of rebuild their, their brand. But anyway, I mean, what are your memories of this time? And I, and I've, you know, I have kind of a long-standing history with this show to essentially speak to all the people who were involved in Godfrey's career and just, just, just do the autopsy. <laughs> Give me the real truth. <laughs> you know, were we God. Just, were we shot? <laughs> no, you weren't. Godfrey was sick. I remember me and Tosin always jammed it in, in the in the car in the van and i remember another time we booked you guys and i think you might have even been headlining and they were opening for you guys but it was a place called cotta Vays in dc that i just convinced this like nice restaurant and venue with all this open space to like let me book metal shows there uh and it was avenged sevenfold was on it oh yeah there's a tour bleeding through and avenged and this was uh the basically the t- i didn't i didn't know you, you booked that show wow um it was, yeah. it was basically the tail end of our determination record cycle. And that was our like headliner or whatever. We did, I don't know, two or three weeks across the East Coast or n- Northeast. And, you know, every show, maybe the best show was like 150 people. Maybe it was pretty like, it was a kind of a bummer. And then, of course, you have, you're taking this band out. You know, both bands, you know, bleeding through end up being bigger than us. And eventually, hold is, you know, we know that the end of that story. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do remember that show. <laughs> yeah, no, I think my perception, God forbid, I think the challenge was you were too metal for a lot of the hardcore and scene kids. And then you were too hardcore for a lot of like the true metal people. And so you got caught in the middle there. Um, and I think that would be my guess with why I never exploded super big in either scene because you, you, you teetered the line. But for me and for Tosin... We loved both of the scenes, so we were like into it, you know. But I, I would probably say that was probably one of the bigger challenges. You didn't go full mosh beat down, and you didn't go full metal, metal, metal. You were a nice mix of the two, and I don't know. I disagree because we would play metalcore tours, and we wouldn't fit in. Like we fit in when we toured with the Anthraxes and the Arch Enemies, and bands you know real metal bands that's where we felt at home so to me yeah. it, it 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 was it wasn't about the sound of the band i think the sound of the band was metal i think it was just perception and uh i think a lot of times and this you know to a certain degree like look at a band like drop for cowboy that we mentioned right that was a band that got more and more quote unquote legitimately metal over the course of their career and the more metal they got they kind of, and more, and I think they almost got better kind of as, as a band as they went on, they, the less popular they got. Yeah. Cause, cause they weren't, they, they didn't blow up with like metal, metal fans. I and mean, they were young, impressionable kids on MySpace. And there was a lot of like, you know, that one song, I forget, Entombment of a Machine, is that what it was called? And they had the, the sample of the girl getting the, ah, and they slit the throat. And then, you know, they, that was, um, What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. 
For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. They're honestly the prime example of a band that like was too, became too precious for their own good because they, they should have just leaned into the whole thing. Like, you know what? Let's keep these fans as they get older and let's continually, you know, like there's a way to like, win over metal fans and not lose you know the non-traditional metal fans that made you bit i mean dude job for a copy that was a very culturally significant situation i mean their hot topic merch sales were insane it was all insane and they they could have wrote it with suicide but they you know suicide silence said yeah this is what we are this is what made us big let's do it and then job kind of ran away from their own shadow type situation. What well, a certain point though, I think for certain bands, you're artists, right? I, and there's, and I, and I think you can, it's funny because I had Tim from Vision of Disorder on the show. And to me, their career was very similar to God Forbid, where kind of caught in between worlds, but they were so committed, like God Forbid was to be, to like do, doing our thing and being not chasing trends, like just being the band we wanted to be. Another band, Poison the Well, each record got more and more artistic and they got less popular (laughs) as they kind of do the more, you know, they kind of developed as artists. And so I hear what you're saying. There's the business aspect of it, of like, know who you are, know the market and play to that. And then that's kind of where the rubber meets the road between the business kind of someone wearing the business hat and someone wearing the artistic hat. And sometimes where those can kind of conflict. Yeah, and I'm even not even coming from a business standpoint. Like, 
listen, if you look cool and you have great music, chances are you're going to do great. It was really like, it's, you know, you do like, you know, these bands that, that blew up with a certain style, like they did that style really well. Yeah. They were like pioneers. I mean, you want to talk about Poison the Well, they're one of my favorite fucking bands. And like, I remember the moment where it all got messed up. They had pioneered this entire wave. They were at the forefront. They were incredible. The fandom was insane. And right when like that style of artistic heavy became ginormous, they put it, they, they signed to a major label, which did make the fans more hypercritical. And they pretty much stopped playing breakdowns and having these big sing-along parts. And like, it was more artsy and it was a great record. I love that album, but I see why, you know, people went, Oh, Norma Jean, bless the martyr. And these other albums that, you know, spoke to them more and poison the well didn't get to truly benefit from the whole empire that they kind of had, had built. I mean, they were, they were right there. I mean, you know, opposite of December and tear from the red, like, they were right there. There was no when 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 Poison the Well was at their peak on those albums before the one on uh, Atlantic. Like there was no more emotional, wild gig for kids that were into that to go to than a Poison the Well show. Head walking, people crying. I mean, it was like you've never seen anything like it. I remember I saw that. I go, this is the coolest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like you can like heavy music and also still be like emotional, like wow you know like it was really something man i um yeah such an incredible band they were that band to me that tied it all together there was like i said bands like vod uh bands like cave-in that were kind of getting into that a little bit but to me they were the ones if if it's it wasn't for them there is no atreyu there's no avenged yeah crossover thing and it's and being there for that moment it was it was really really something to see um i didn't see their la show recently right before lockdown but i heard it was out of this world and they when they played the old songs people were right back to where they were i heard it was incredible yeah i mean and and i think we've seen that with a lot of these artists that will reunite or you know do some festival the stuff that made an impact it's still kind of apparent and it's still like if you were 18, right. Or 21, whenever one of those records came out and it was important to you, that's kind of part of who you are, right. It's part of who who made you are. And it's, and it's really awesome to actually see that, that these bands can kind of go away, come back and people are, it's still like a big part of, of uh, the kind of connective and emotional tissue of who who they are. So I am disappointed too, that I did not make it out to, to, I think they did a couple shows. They might have did. Yeah, I think we did. But um, so now there's a band I want to talk about that was really instrumental in kind of shaping the development of Sumerian and kind of like this step to this whole other world, right? And that's Asking Alexandria. Uh, how did you discover Asking Alexandria? And did you kind of, again, kind of going back to this kind of scouting idea, did you envision the potential of that band from the get-go yeah uh we got them i want to say it was like an intern at their management company or an intern somewhere i don't even, i don't think the intern was at samaria and they told us that we should check it out and we went to their myspace and heard 
Um, I think the cow, I was once possibly maybe perhaps a cowboy king or we heard like a couple songs. We're like, this is unbelievable. They're going to be ginormous. Um, and we immediately just went and signed them. And then um, we were booking them as well, uh, me and Amanda. And I remember, I remember the one I had a very, and I still do a very good relationship with Eric Rushing, who was a manager at the time. And after we had done a few tours, I was like, hey, we need to headline this band. They're way bigger than anyone, you know, truly realizes until we headline, it's not going to be real. And the management company wanted them to open for two of their other bands. I think it was I Skylet Drive and I set my friends on fire and they wanted them to take third to five for like three or four hundred dollars. And again, this is where as the agent, you can really, you know, a good agent who knows what the what time it is, is, is invaluable. I got into a massive argument with Eric over it. I go, we're not taking 300 bucks for three of five. The band wanted to do it. And the band was so comfortable with how much merch they were selling. And the fact they're like, yeah, cool. We'll go play for 300 bucks and do that. I was like, guys, you don't realize what's going on. Like this is show business. Like you got to show the world that you're the future. You can't, you're not going to do that as third to five to these other bands that don't have the, 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 just the juggernaut, of, of hype and, and, you know, um, turbulence that you guys do as far as shaking everything up. And, um, I remember I got into a screaming match with, with Eric at artery. And I was like, you want them to open for these bands because it's an easier thing for you to do. Cause it's, you know, it's inner packaging. And I was like, dude, I know that I inner package my stuff all the time too, as an agency, but like, you got to do what's best for them and wearing only the asking house. Like this band's way bigger than those bands. And they're like, no, you're being, you're being Ash. You're being Ash. like, no, this band's fucking big, dude. And I'll never forget it, man. We, we, we did the tour. It was the welcome to the circus tour. And it was like, we came as Romans. And I think from first to last and some other bands. And um, we booked it going back to the Palladium in Worcester. We booked it in the upstairs room, which is like a 500 cap on a Monday night. And it sold out like weeks in advance. And there was a discussion with the promoter and with, manager and like we should just keep it sold out and we'll do it next time i go uh-uh there's a lot of fucking people that don't have tickets to the show that want to go and i got into another debate and i was like turn the meter back on open it up we're playing the main stage you're like ash you're crazy it's a monday night like a monday night at main stage palladium it's not that real i go oh it's fucking real dude and i convinced him to move it and it was a Monday night in Worcester and the show ended up doing over 1800 people. And it was that show that made everyone in the business go, God damn, asking Alexandria did 1800 people on a Monday in Worcester. Um, and that tour in general was selling out and getting upgraded, but it was specifically the Monday in Worcester. Cause that, you know, the Palladium, that was the new England mountain hardcore festival. That was kind of like the, the litmus test for, sorry, I got a phone call. That, the Palladium was kind of like a litmus test for like, how real is this thing, you know? Um, and that show kind of, and then the, from there it was off to the races. Um, and speaking of Thrash and Burn, I remember asking before that tour, I want to say had committed to doing Thrash and Burn with Born of Osiris. And I remember me and Sean had to take Born of Osiris out to lunch at California Pizza Kitchen in the Valley and go, hey guys, so here's the deal. That British band that's supposed to be going on right before you, uh uh-uh. uh, you need to switch this around and you need to let them play last on Thrashbird. And the band was all excited because, like, no, but we're going to headline the festival club tour. And I was like, it ain't your moment on this one, guys, please. And we, and luckily, 
Born of Osiris really trusted us. And they're like, okay, if you guys say so, and they switched. And it was obviously the right thing to do because Born of Osiris is doing great as well. But Asking's level uh, of, of power was just much higher when it came to selling tickets. So, um, yeah. So that's the first tour I ever even heard of them on because God forbid it just did a, did a tour with Kitty and Kitty was on that tour. And I think right. Periphery was on the tour, right? Periphery was on it as well, yeah. yeah. So we were friends with those bands and I was like, who the fuck is this band that's headlining? I'm like, I've, I've never heard this band and they're headlining. And I remember watching it, it was just, when I first heard them, I was like, oh, it kind of sounds like Azalea dying, but with like more singing parts. Kind of a mashy Azalea. That's the way I kind of perceived it. Yeah. At the time. And I just noticed it was just all young super young kids and a lot of girls are into it and i was like a lot of girls and i was like holy shit this is a this is a different this is a different vibe around here uh <laughs> uh but what they and, and i you know seeing some of the the sales numbers and stream streaming numbers this was obviously a band that kind of had that uh potential to take the label to a whole new place right they had true crossover potential what did this kind of make you recalibrate what uh sumerian could be as a label um i don't know if re well okay i, I guess there's some element of re i mean I, we had already had icy stars right so we had already gone blatantly for stuff that you know fans of the faceless for example weren't going to be stoked on um and I still fight this fight today when I have, you know, alternative acts like Meg Myers and the Smashing Pumpkins and people are like, oh, wait, you're like a metal label, right? I'm like, no, I just, I, my first release was a metal band, but like even going back to October, 2007, the same time we put out Born of Osiris, which was, you know, Faceless, Stick to Your Guns and then Boo, I also put out two other records. One was called Kenosha, which was like a Paramore female fronted, like super, you know, uh, just... Sound, I mean, it sounded very similar to Paramore. It was, it was, you know, emo, indie rock, poppy, really, really great band. Um, and then this other thing that was called Creature Feature, which was this Tim Burton-esque, like, theatrical, you know, quirky goth rock thing. Um, and also that guy, Curtis, who was the front from an band, super talented and creative. So Sumerian was always putting out all sorts of different styles the the double-edged sword was that the whole sumerian court thing with bands like born of osiris veil of maya and after the burial who now i think even from the beginning they all had their own sound and identity but now it's become much more apparent people started there was deathcore which everyone knew but then there was this other wave that had heavy you know music um the sumerian court is basically you could be super progressive and cutting edge musically, but also beat it fucking down, basically. And so, like, that became Sumerian Core. Like, you can be, and really, honestly, if you were to ask me, the original Sumerian Core band was fucking Reflux, because <laughs> that's kind of what we were doing. Like, we were like, you know, you look at, you listen to some of those old songs, and, you know, that that's kind of, you know, I don't know. Anyway, not to go back to the Reflux, but that became the thing because we were synonymous with a new wave of progressive heavy bands that still had a super young fan base, but a strapping young lad, older metal fan could also be like, all right, I fuck with that. So with asking, we blatantly hit into like 
hot topic, um, you know, mall metal, MySpace magic, or however you want to call it. Um, and, but, but, the, but the interesting thing about them is that these guys were true rock stars, man. Like they, like all of the, you know, Danny's voice, obviously it's changed a lot. His image has changed. Um, the band in general has continued to change, but like they were just larger than life. I mean, they, when they would roll up, I mean, it was kind of like a Beatlemania type of situation. You know, they're British, they're really good looking. They had all these stage moves and their singer could just fucking, I mean, he could sing like a lot of these guys couldn't sing in his, in his, uh, not to put him next to like Killswitch in those bands, but like in that new way, you know, cause Killswitch was already huge when asking was, was breaking off of MySpace. in this new wave of bands. He was, you know, Danny, I mean, he could just sing. He had the voice that, like, if I could have sung like Danny, I'd probably still be in a band right now. No, he, he just has that genetic God-given gift. He has a a re, he's a real kind of born rock and roll singer. I mean, he's got chops, he's got pipes, and he's got the the look and the you know the the charisma, the whole kind of ball. But to to me, and and like I said, for me, I'm kind of coming into this. I feel like with a lot of these scenes, I'm always like a year later, <laughs> two years late, kind of discovering some of this stuff, but. Like you said, with I see stars, it was like this, uh, you know, some people call it like boy bands with guitars kind of era of, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the beginning of streaming and, and things like that. So this is a, a <laughs> this is connected, but a, but a little different. I was trying to figure out, I was like, we just toured with one of the last uh, tours Bad Wolves did last, the years are blending to each other now between the pandemic. So I guess this is the summer of uh, 2019. We did uh tour with them and Papa Roach. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure Asking Alexandria, man for man, is the best looking band in rock. Like, I'm like, just every dude is like in good shape. They all got model features. I'm, I just, I, every day I'll see these motherfuckers, I get sick to my stomach. I'm like, I need, I'm like, I need to stop eating cupcakes. I need to go <laughs> see a surgeon. This is just, this is, this, this is not fair. All right. I don't know. What's going on? Do you concur? All right, are they man for man? Because a lot of like good looking bands, it's really you think it's a good looking band, but it's like two guys, and then the other guys are kind of like you know, I don't know. One guy like does push ups, and another guy just like knows how to like, knows how to, like tuck his gut. Tuck his gut. Uh, <laughs> do you concur? Are are they the best looking rock band out there? I don't know. Is this weird for two guys to be talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no no it's not listen it, it is what it is man you got to be able to to describe. i mean i think there was definitely a moment where i think it was very undeniable i think now there's a lot of you know uh, i mean i had this conversation with, with with asking before their last record about you know musical styles and and visuals and imagery and artwork and all this stuff and like you know i was always telling them guys stop stop focusing on the fact that you have kids now when you're 30 plus like you know they're like no and i was like it, you're still edgy and cool and new and you made this whole thing um so i would say like <laughs> what's that they're still younger than i am <laughs> yeah they're fucking young as shit i was telling ben i was like dude like stop it you're, you know like you're super young still you know um um yeah, they're definitely one of the best looking bands. I mean, I'll say this. There, there's another young Sumerian band. They're all three brothers. They're called Palais Royale. Oh, and yeah. they, have a, they have a very similar um, fandom that Asking had when Asking was breaking. And just, you know, I mean, 
dude, I'll never forget it. They had to do, they didn't want to do the tour, but we convinced them that they had to do it for the sake of like radio and older people looking at them, but they were playing, they did a tour with pop evil and actually going back to Eric rushing. Cause it was his show in, at ACE spades in Sacramento. And we had this fun moment um, watching them. Cause when they got off stage, sure enough, Palerial goes into the stage or goes by the merch and like the whole show, hundreds of people are flooding to touch the sweaty band members. They're like, Oh my God, I got a picture. And I look at, I looked at Eric, I go, does this, does this remind you of something? Um, and it's that same magic, you know, and what's, what's so funny about Palais and asking. So asking was British, but they broke in America first. And then they went back over to the UK and they were big after they got big in America with Palais they broke in the UK first. They broke in London. And then it translated back across the pond to the US, even though they're, well, technically they're born, you know, they're originally Canadian, but, you know, they're a North American band. But London's actually their biggest market. I mean, there are no, thousands and thousands of people in London. That's how they came on my radar is my buddy Adam Segura at the Noise Cartel. Uh, he was like, oh, yeah, I got to, I'm working with this band. And I got to go, they're, they're playing over here. It's sold out. 2000 people i'm like and i never heard of him i was like oh shit so and you know adam so adam is uh two fun behind the scenes stories with adam because adam worked with asking and palais i told adam i wanted asking on the cover of metal hammer and i love adam we still work to him to this day and this is just fun behind the scenes because i'm assuming a lot of people that want to hear behind the scenes stuff listen to this podcast so i feel like i got it it's my due diligence to share this adam was on this show by the way so (laughs) oh great i have to go listen to his episode i love adam I was like, hey, I want Asking Alexandria on the cover of Metal Hammer. And he's like, they're never going to do it. They don't consider them metal enough. I go, well, that's why I have you. You're the publicist. You're going to convince them that they're fucking metal enough to be on the cover of their magazine. I was like, I can reference other stuff that's not uber, uber metal that they've done. He's like, they're not going to do it. I got into a big fucking shouting match with them in my office. I was like, you're going to figure it out. There's a way to do this. There has to be a way. It's the cover of Metal Hammer. I go, I don't need it to be the official Metal Hammer in downtown London on the 1st of January, whatever, but like there's a way to get them to do it. And I think Adam was probably half mad at me that I laid into him so bad, but the other half, he was like, you know what? Like, all right, fuck it. I'll, I'll figure some out. And he convinced metal hammer to do a special U S cover that asking, cause again, what people perceive, you know, metal in certain countries is different than other countries. Long story short, Metal Hammer put Asking on the cover as a special like North American edition of the magazine. And I drove down to the Laurel Canyon um, newsstand and I got it. There. I go, ha, look at this. We did it. And I was so happy that that Adam uh, was able to pull it off. And we got the cover of Metal Hammer. It might not have been in the UK, but it was still the magazine and it looked great. You know, when you frame it and you put it on the Internet, whatever else. And then Adam, I told him very early on about Palais Royale. We were sitting at I so funny because I have a really selective memory. Like I, I forget so much shit, but there's certain things I remember like perfectly. And I was with Adam at the islands in Marina del Rey, right where the border of Venice Beach is. I used to live down there. And I'm like, this is the next one. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Look at these scarves and these outfits. And he <laughs> fucking wrote it off. I go, there are three brothers like you have to do it and speaking back to the it factor so i got tipped off about palais from my mom's friend out in palm springs he goes you should check this band out and i drove out there with my anr nick walters who's been with sumerian forever and they were playing this thing called high school nation i didn't even know this thing existed this interesting company figured out how to get bands and also like solo pop artists who were like on the come up to go and play 
at like recess and lunch breaks at high schools. It was called high school nation. And me and me and, uh, uh, Nick drove out to this thing and I could tell by looking at these kids and I did a little research, like the mom manages them. They dress like the fucking Rolling Stones. I was like, these kids are going to be wide eyed. I was like, I'm going to drive my Bentley. I, I don't ever post my car on the internet. I, I, I don't ever flaunt my stuff like that. It's just not who I am. But I was like, I had it for a reason because sometimes you do have to like Lex. You have to. It's just it's show business, you know. In New York, it's your clothes. In LA, it's your car. And so I was like, "Fuck it!" Like, I'm gonna drive this thing out to I don't even know where it was, like Fullerton or Ontario or somewhere. And we pulled up in the back lot of this high school, and we and the band starts playing. And I remember in the first three seconds of their set, I just looked at Nick. I go, "They have it." You, they just. I don't know. It, it sounds so like hokey pokey to like say this, but like as a record guy. And, and it, can, it can be the same thing for a manager, an agent, an artist who sees another band that they want to tour with. Sometimes you can just see it and feel it and it's instantaneous. And you're just like, I don't even need to wait for the chorus. If they don't have the chorus yet, we're going to get them the chorus. This shit is, they just have the it factor, man. And, and Palais had it immediately. Me and Nick looked at each other and we're like, we have to sign this band. Um, and then, yeah, the rest is history. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about that called Blink which is the idea that there's uh, essentially a, a certain amount of grand wisdom and intelligence in like the snapshot kind of, uh, you know, uh, deter, you know, things when we're trying to figure out a, a, a situation. And, uh, but that, and it comes from like hundreds of thousands of years of evolution that we developed <laughs> this ability to kind of make these, these snap decisions. So it's, I, I, I feel you there. And it's, um, you know, I, I try and work on that and develop that m myself. Um, I want to get. That's fascinating. What is that book called? Blink. It's great. Blink? Yeah. Malcolm Gladwell. I'm going to order that. I've never heard of that book. Dude, I recommend the audiobook because Malcolm Gladwell has one of the coolest sounding speaking voices in the world. And it's always cool to hear the author uh, do the, you know, do the audio because they understand kind of the inflections, where to pause, where to kind of accentuate. So. Definitely check that out. Uh, so I want I want to get into the film stuff. Uh, I could with the music stuff. I I could probably keep talking to you for three more hours just about the music stuff and the label and a million different things. But I don't want to. I don't want the the film stuff to go by the wayside. So you made a film. You wrote, directed, and starred in a film called What Now, and that came out which year? Well, it was 20, we shot it 2014, came out 2015. 2014, 2015. And what fascinates me about this um, in general with, with you and why you're such an inspiring person to me uh, is that you're someone that is able to kind of see yourself in different realms and you're not limited by someone else's perception. You're, you have ambition, you have vision, and you can kind of say, I'm going to do something that's bigger than anyone else could ever even think of. And I'm going to dream bigger and I'm going to think bigger. Where does that come from? Um, I think it comes from. So I, I didn't meet my dad till I was 34, but I grew up with a single mom who was very supportive and unorthodox in the sense of like. You know, she had plenty of flaws, but 
um, she, she was a dreamer, you know, she was a dreamer and my mom and my dad is a dreamer too. Uh, and when I met my dad and we became the best of friends, like I realized I am this weird mix of my mom and my dad. And I think the ambition and look, there's a lot of things I've talked myself out of that, that I look back in hindsight, I was like, dude, I should have just fucking done that. Why did I, you know, get in, I, I, why did I get in my own way? But I think the dreamer element um, probably does come from my parents, but it also comes from like results, you know, even just tapping in earlier to this conversation, like everyone said, you know, don't do summer slaughter, bad idea. Everyone said, don't start a record label in 2006. Worst, worst time in the history of the recorded music business. <laughs> That's hilarious, actually. <laughs> yeah. And so like when everyone's I honestly have a thing, like there's certain people and I'm, I'm, they will remain nameless. Uh, but some of my closest friends, like, you know, we reference certain things. It's like there's certain, you know, wise people when I've seen throughout, like they'll be like, oh, yeah, that's good. And then it's not good. And they're like, oh, that's a terrible idea. And then it ends up being like perfect. So there's certain ones I'm like, if they think this is a terrible idea, I'm doing it because they're always fucking wrong. And uh, and it's actually a good sign when you get certain negative feedback. But honestly, some of the biggest like moments, um, same thing again, like talking about that tour with asking. Eric Rushing was a bigger player than me. He had a day to remember. He had all these bands. I mean, he was, they were at the, you know, they had, Devil Wars Prada, Attack Attack when they were peaking, like, and I just went against them. Um, and Eric's a brilliant guy. I mean, we're, we're still very good friends and he's really taken off as a club owner and a bar owner and a Live Nation exec. And, um, but I think the dreaming element of doing that is like, when you see results, um, even when people try and talk you out of it, it kind of like furthers the insanity, if that makes sense. You know, like, I, I have my intuition the whole gut instinct coming from the gut again nobody bats a thousand but i i can say and i've had i'm not going to go into specifics but i had a call last night with someone who i've always looked up to and idolized uh, one of the most iconic artists and he was like hey man uh, you know we know each other pretty well now and i want to go with your intuition like so when you get your feeling like let's go with that um, this is someone who I had to have long, you know, conversations with. And so that into it. So there's two sides of there's the intuition of like, we should do this. And there's also just like, I'm a dreamer. Let's do it. Like specifically with this movie, that was me and my friends basically having fun and learning how to make a movie, you know? So it was like, people like it, but we made it for five bucks and we had five bucks to promote it with. And like, you know, we got a real film distributor and it came out on Hulu and like, you know, it did its thing. And you know, we had a premiere and people were laughing, but that was really like me kind of just like having fun and being, let's see how this like movie making thing works. And then American Satan was really like the first like movie movie that like, you know, out through Miramax, theatrical release, Showtime picked it up her first window. Like that was like my first like, okay, I just made like a movie. Well, um, so for the people listening to this, your father... John G. Avildsen directed Karate Kid, Rocky, and my my personal favorite, Lean on Me. Lean on Me, dude, it's the fucking best. Personal favorite. I, I I do I do a lots of lines. I I basically do Lean on Me lines like every day. You know, I'm like, <laughs> in rule to taint to stain in rule. 
The cancer of racism has improved this country's fabric. I do it all day. Wow, dude, that's a really good impression. That was really impressive. He goes, Mr. Donnell, do you know why I demoted? <laughs> because I'm sick and tired of seeing our football team get kicked around the field. Thank you. Sit down. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so good. Wow. That's the best I've ever heard anyone do. They say one bad apple spoils the bunch. Well, how about 300? Oh, my God. <laughs> Yo, I tell you, the speech, the two speeches Morgan Freeman gives on stage oh, no, in that he, movie. Dude, he gives three speeches in a row and walks out the room. He gives one to the teachers. That means they can all read, right? Yeah. <laughs> he walks in the room. Then he gives the speech to the kids in the hall, you know? Then he goes to the PTA meeting and gives a speech, you know? And it's so, but God forbid would watch that shit on a uh, tour in the van and so I saw it like 5,000 times. So I have all the shit memorized and I, I love it. Uh, anyway, okay. You, you, know, you know what my take on, on Lean On Me is? I think, because you can't remake that movie. There's no point. It's perfect as it is. Yes. There's, they need to, I, I think Hollywood should start doing this. They need to re-release, no different than how the music business represses vinyl and it's remastered and, you know, it gets a whole new life. There's certain movies that like, and some of them are ahead of a time, ahead of their time, like the Oliver Stone, The Doors. I feel like if that movie came out today, it would have been ten times bigger at the box office than it was back when it did. There's movies I really think Hollywood should just like literally theatrically re-release. You re-promote it. You do press again. Like Lean on Me is one of those movies. I think there's so every young person I've shown that movie to, like under the age of like 27 who hadn't seen it, they're like, "How did I never see this? This is like." And I just think there's so many young people that don't know these older films that would go to the movie theater and watch them. But you don't, all you have to do is put on Netflix. There'll be a random like Martin Lawrence movie, National Security or something that was like the 59th most popular movie the year it came out. It'll just be on Netflix and it'll be in the top 10. So I think all you got to do is yeah. put it out like that. And they might actually have to do things like re-releases to actually incentivize people to come back to the movie theaters because you know once uh the pandemic starts kind of rolling back because uh people have not been super psyched about going to the theater you know and you, you kind of saw that mm -hmm. with tenant and kind of me i was all about it but i had to literally had to go to another state to see it because <laughs> we're in california uh but anyway kind of kind of kind of go but i agree with you I, and i my favorite thing about living in la is the theater scene before all this went down. I go to Tarantino's theater all the time. I go, uh, I go to all, all kinds of theaters. But um, going back to what I said, uh, but you know, kind of go back to your father is uh, maybe, and I don't, I imagine, cause you're basically the same age as me. So you must've been developing this story before you even met your dad. The story as far as like the American Satan Paradise City World. What, what now? I, I, I'm, I'm still talking talk, talking about. Oh it. yeah, um, yeah. That that was before I ever met my dad. So, but but what I'm saying, but just knowing your lineage, is it? And what's crazy is I actually met my half sister before I ever met my dad, and we became friends. And she's actually in what now? <laughs> and she she grew up with my dad, but I I didn't meet my dad until after that movie. But just having that lineage, is it something you're like? All right, I should theoretically have a preternatural 
ability here or you know or just give did that give you confidence yeah so the crazy thing about that is that i grew up with my dad's last name but i never met him but i knew obviously i knew you know karate kid was one of the biggest you know movies in the world especially in america when i was in elementary school and stuff in the 80s um so i it was constantly i was constantly reminded and it was, and it was it was a head fuck because I loved his movies. I mean, Lean on Me is one of my favorite movies. I mean, I love obviously Karate Kid and Rocky and, you know, these epic underdog, you know, in inspirational tales. Um, so I was always influenced and it was a very like, you know, hard thing, the process of like, this guy, you know, doesn't acknowledge me, want anything to do with me, but I love his work. And honestly, because I had a complex as soon as I was old enough to understand the fact of who my dad was and I had his last name, I purposely went to music first one, because music at a very young age, when I discovered rock and roll, it pretty much like was my guiding light. Um, and I also knew that my dad and family, they had nothing to do with music. So I was like, I'm going to make my name in music and do that. Cause I don't want to worry about movies. Cause that's what my dad did. And I didn't want to ever seem like I was trying to emulate him or exploit my last name you know so i was like once i get to a certain point in the music business that's what i'm going to transfer over into tv and film um and so yeah once basically sumerian in my career and music got to a certain point i said okay now now i'm going to go because I, i'm getting over here based on who i am not on who my dad is and then as fate would have it, i ended up meeting him after making what now before making american satan and then we became very close and then i just got so much great knowledge and wisdom from him as a filmmaker and a director from, you know, just constantly hanging out together and going out to, you know, a zillion dinners and, and all that. So, um, but I do feel like, I don't know. I, I, I definitely have like a, I, there's, I, I inherited some stuff from him. I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm going to, I mean, I have big shoes to fill. I can only hope to ever make a film uh, that has, you know, any realistic fraction of the impact that his biggest work did. Um, I hope one day I, I, I can carry the torch to an honorable level. Um, but I do think I have a much more um, there's, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know how to phrase it, but I definitely, I think the answer to your question is yes, there's something there. And, and I'm seeing that more and more as I work with actors and am able to, you know, paint pictures as a director and, um, uh, you know, it's, I'm only going to get better. I'm very early on in this journey. So I want to talk about the, the craft a little bit. I'm a, as you can see, I'm a movie film fanatic. Uh, and I really study it uh, from a lot of different perspectives. So just the, the directing side and, you know, we can kind of go through the history of, especially d during the kind of indie wave of the nineties, people like Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez and, people like this where you have someone like Tarantino had never you know his first direct his directorial debut is Reservoir Dogs and he's someone who didn't go to film school but his encyclopedic uh knowledge kind of allowed him to somehow come in you know with you know uh, as somewhat of a phenom um for someone like you what would like how did you prepare for the physical act of shooting and cop, you know, doing, getting your shots together, camera moves, uh, working with 
um, your DP? Like, how did how did you kind of make sure that when it was day one ready to shoot that you actually could kind of understand the framework, what you're trying to get done from just a technical standpoint? Well, that's why I did what now first. And I was like, let me just do something really about for what now. Oh, that was that was mainly just smaller things I was able to do from the music side, like being on music video sets. And there was like some other things we did. There was a thing, you know, the warrior show um, and really just doing as much as I could in my own um, from a story standpoint, the more technical stuff um, specifically with camera work. Like I have been fortunate to have, you know, two great DPs. Well, I mean, they're all the DPs, all three, but, you know, specifically when, when things became more um, involved with American state in paradise city, like, you know, I'm the director and then there's a director of photography and I'm a very story driven director. So to me, like the most important thing is like, we're telling the story in a way that the audience is going to care and they're going to ask, well, what happens next? And then from a cinematic standpoint, I want to tell that story to where the camera work helps amplify and augment the excitement of paying attention to the story. Um, and that's where I've just been very fortunate with Andy Strayhorn from American Satan and Michael Alden Lloyd from Paradise City that I learned so much from them. Um, and I'm constantly asking them questions and they're very artistic uh, filmmakers as well um, as cinematographers. So, you know, every, every scene I do, I learn more and more, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a people that have seen American Satan that watch paradise city. They will undeniably, I think, see a big um, lift on all things, um, including even the performances. Andy Beersack, uh, the lead has grown immensely. I mean, he, I think you're really, a lot of people would be impressed with his performance in the series. Um, so I, you know, I'm just constantly trying to learn and, and, and do better, but no, I didn't go to like NYU film school. I didn't come up in it. And Tarantino was already a writer and he had done a short film as well before Reservoir Dogs, but that was like, you know, that's what he was doing. Like if I had spent the past 15 years just studying film instead of being, you know, need, you know, full body deep into the music business. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure even what now would have turned out significantly different um but now that's what i'm saying it's very early on for me like i've been i've always loved movies and i've you know i i have certain tastes and, and styles that gravitate to me more than other you know genres and stuff but you know i've really been doing it basically like five six years like really doing it. it's completely brand new you know what about the acting did you have any you know you cast yourself in the lead which is a lot of responsibility um, and, and you as someone, right. Who, like, you've talked about this idea of like the three main things you'll look at for, from an artist, right? Like they need these components. There's also that element of who should front a film and, and who has that star power. Is there mm -hmm. any question of, of that with yourself? Like, can I pull this off? Does it make sense to have me in the lead? I mean, had you, uh, what was your acting experience before that? I've been to summer camps and did like much do about nothing and a Milton Kafka thing. And um, I, my mom sent me to the creative arts summer camp. So I'd acted before in plays and theater. I had never done anything actually like a scripted movie. Um, and again, for what now that was like, you know, me, JJ and Lorenzo were basically best friends in real life. So I was like, 
all right, like, let's just have fun and like do this and like really learn, you know, all of the angles of it all. So that was really like that movie was basically like a love letter to like that moment in time in my life and my friends and online dating. And, you know, um, and it's fucking, you know, look for what it is. It's, it's fucking funny, man. It probably should have been like a web series. Like looking back on it now, I'm like, we should have like cut this up and made it like a thing and, and, and done it. Cause you know, doing an indie film, unless you have a bunch of money, especially comedy, like that's another thing I learned. Like, comedy is probably the hardest genre for independent film like you know every once once every 20 years you might have a napoleon dynamite but and that, this i didn't realize like comedy is really hard unless you're a studio like to make like a big comedy movie like you can make indie dramas and indie horrors and things like that that are much more like there's much more of a lane for it like indie films you know kind of like you know there's an underground element to it like comedies it's very rare that and that a low budget indie comedy becomes some lightning in a bottle sensation it does happen but it's much more common in drama and horror than it is comedy um i, I had no idea about that it's very fast even with like the foreign sales stuff like when you try and sell movies around the world american comedy comedy can be very specific to a region and to a country so certain styles of comedy you know, just because something's really funny to a bunch of Americans, that doesn't mean someone in Austria is going to get it, you know, especially if they're reading subtitles, they don't know the slang, the lingo. So um, comedy specifically is just the hardest thing to do on an indie level and on a worldwide indie level. So that was a, that was you know interesting and fascinating to learn about. Well, so with American Satan, I was uh, grateful enough to go to. I, was, is it the main premiere? I, I went to one of the premieres. I think it was the main premiere. Uh, I don't know if you did did, did multiple. Was it at Universal or was that the ArcLight? Yeah. It was at Universal. Yeah, so you went to the real one. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, great great experience. I, I had a lot of fun, and 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 you know, and to this day, I just you know, congratulations. You know, just pulling something like that off uh, is a real achievement, and uh, and seeing obviously how much things were elevated. You know this wasn't a comedy it was darker material you're you know you had bigger stars in it you know obviously andy is kind of his own you know special kind of ind individual dealing with kind of more taboo subject matter it's more violence more sex kind of all this different stuff and 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 the rock and roll element um what was your kind of goal with american satan as you consider it your first real film i guess quote unquote wanted to make something that that my main goal with it was to have young adults want to watch it more than once straight up i mean i wanted to make, obviously make a, a film like a that you know get yeah and the thing is like there's certain movies that i love that i'll never watch more than once i mean i just watched like nomad land which is up for all these awards and it's a great film for what it is i don't know that i would watch it multiple times same thing with like um, Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is an incredible film, but it's like super gnarly. The Marriage Story. Um, Great film. These are incredible movies. and But unless you want someone else to live through it again for their first time with you seeing it a second time, or like you just want to kind of like love the, the actual artistic side of the film, like Sound of Metal is another one I highly recommend. It's amazing, amazing film. Movies like that are harder for me to go back and watch more than once because of the subject matter and what's that? Like heart wrenching. 
going to. Yeah. It's just like, you know, they're very emotionally um, challenging uh, to relive. But that first time you live it, you're like, wow, like that was so incredible. So the American Satan, I look back at a lot of movies that I loved when I was a teenager. I was like, why did I watch that movie more than once? You know, and a lot of those, you know, whether it's Empire Records, Days and Confused, like there's certain movies that were just such a part of my youth. And I was like, I feel like there's a lot of young people that if I tell this story in a certain way and I use certain people that aren't seasoned actors, but will continue to, I think, get better and better. Like, I think there's a way that this is really going to develop a cult following, especially with young people. And it's going to be a fun movie for them to watch more than once. And every time they watch it, they're going to pick up on another little nugget that they might not have noticed before. And I think we did that, you know, Um, the fandom with the movie. And again, it was a low budget movie with a very low budget uh, uh, fund to promote it even though we ended up getting Showtime and Miramax as a distributor, which was like my favorite indie film distributor growing up. So there was a lot of like kind of getting signed by your favorite record label type thing. Um, it was a really amazing experience in that regard. But the thing has free RV. <laughs> oh, if you want a funny story. So it was, so he was already, it was pre Harvey getting exposed for being a monster but he was, he was already gone from Miramax for many, many years. He was already at the Weinstein company. So he had nothing to do with the company. But he's synonymous with it. And when you think Miramax, you think Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and the name of Miramax comes from their two parents' names. And funny enough, my mother's name is Miroslava. I call her Mira. With Miramax, that experience was very interesting. Because one, when we signed there, there was like 20 people in the room. Kind of like when you sign to a major label. And all these people are working for you. And you have this connection, all these people. And then all of a sudden, something changes at the major and everyone that was like working on your band is now gone. That happened with us at Miramax because there's a new CEO. So we signed there. There's 20 different people in the room, all these different department heads. We make this nice, great connection with everyone there. New CEO. We signed the paperwork. A week later, everyone in that room that we signed to no longer works there. Gone. And then to add insult to injury, like I was like, oh, well, at least I have, it's still Miramax. Like, I got my Miramax hat, my shirt. I'm like, this is cool. Like I'm all marking out like, oh my God, I got a movie at Miramax. I'm like putting my Miramax shirt. I'm going to like wear it to the gym and be like, oh, I'm that guy. Like I have a Miramax movie. And then fucking Harvey Weinstein gets fucking exposed. I go, oh my God, I can't even wear this shirt in public. People are going to think I'm insane. So literally like everyone leaves the company. And then a few days later, like Harvey Weinstein gets exposed for being a fucking monster. And then I'm like, I can't even wear this shirt. Like people are wearing Miramax shirts as like a costume for Halloween. Like I had a friend that wore like a white robe and a Miramax shirt and was like pretending to be hard. And so that was just, you know, when it rains, it pours, I guess. But um, it was still a good experience. So there was a, you know, I, I, I did a thing called a, uh, a key man clause, which they have these in, in uh, the music business as well, which is basically if you sign to a label and I've done this with some of my artists, there's a, a key man. Well, now we'll, we'll call it a key person clause. But there's a key person clause or point person clause that basically says your contract's valid, but if this person leaves the company, you have the ability to go with them or get out of the deal. That's cool. And so, yeah. And so that's a big thing in, in music. And I was able to get that renegotiated into the Miramax deal. Once everyone left, I said, well, hold on. The one guy that I still know here is who's the head of sales. He's like the only one person I know. So I want you know, a key person clause with him. 
And then sure enough, he left uh, not long later. And then I was like, wow, I don't even know anyone at this company. So I was you know, able to get um, the rights back uh, in certain areas with the film because of that, because literally everyone was gone at the company. So that was a big learning experience. Um, and one thing I'll say, because people always ask me, like, what's the difference between like the movie business and the music business? I go, honestly, there's a lot of similarities. The easiest way I can sum it up is basically two zeros on every line item because movies are much more expensive and about two years on every timeline because you can go into a, you can go into the studio tonight and make the best bad wolf song ever and release it tomorrow morning on the internet if you want but with the movie business you know it everything takes a lot longer and there's so many more moving pieces and you know it's just a much bigger um event every time to make a, a movie versus it is to make an album as far as like that's the question is uh when you sign that deal with Miramax, is that just for that one film? Or are you doing like a multiple film? It's one film. No, I hope to get to that level, right? Like you look at like the Game of Thrones creators and like because of their incredible success and talent, they were able to get the a, a massive deal with Netflix for, you know, whatever. I think it's like 10 years and 200 million or five years and 200 million. I forget the length, but like similar to record labels signing an artist exclusively mm -hmm. that basically says, Hey, anything you put out, we get the first right to put it out. Studios and streamers do that as well. You know, Ryan Murphy has, you can become a big enough, you know, creator or showrunner that there's an actual network or streamer that has you exclusively unless they want to let you out. Same thing with even like actors, you can get first look deals, you know? So there's a lot of similarities between the two. There really is. The more and more I do it, the more and more I, I see that. So, so but no, the Miramax thing was a one-off. So does a distributor help with the funding or is it something you have a film done and then you go get distribution? It can work both ways. Like you, it can be like, Hey, here's my demo tape, AKA like, here's my script and like my sizzle reel. We want to go get this made. And then they finance it versus like you can make it independently and it's kind of like having an, uh, a band who's got a record already done and it's really good. And then people are trying to bid on it and get it because they already see what the finished product is. Um, and not to say that there still can't be changes. Like you can make an indie film and get a bunch of love at a, at a film festival and then get a bidding war. And even after you sell it, you know, the, the distributor will still want to make changes. Hey, this is what we think your poster is. This is what we think the trailer is. We think you need to take 15 minutes out of the movie or you need to, you know, they still A&R it to a certain degree. Not always. Sometimes it's just like, it's perfect how it is. Or the, the director can say, I'll, or the producer can say, hey, we're going to release it for you, but you're not allowed to change anything. You know, every deal is different in that regard. You just never know. Same thing with like a label and an artist. Like the, there's, there's several different ways that can all go down. Every movie, every album is its own, you know, piece of art that comes with its own paperwork. But um, a lot of times indie films get made and they go to the festival circuit and they get sold based on truly the just the uh, inherent artistic value and integrity of the film itself or how much a distributor thinks it can it can do with it based on how strong the film is and who the target audience is and everything else. The other side of independent filmmaking is, is very predicated on foreign sales. And that's why you see a lot of these movies with Nicolas Cage or Bruce Willis, like all up on the poster and they shoot them out really fast. And they, they basically shoot them in a matter of days and get them on a certain page count. And then based on that, 
they sell, they're able to finance the movie based on all these, you know, um, foreign sales estimates and foreign sales guarantees because this actor is worth, worth this in Germany and this actor is worth this in Austria. And that's why also even like, you know, on smaller stars like a, a Van Damme or Steven Seagal, um, Dolph Lundgren, a lot of these actors who, um, you know, are world-renowned, famous actors, you go on their IMDb and you're like, wait, what's this movie? What's that movie? And a lot of these movies are getting made because these producers have figured out how to make money um, based on, you know, I, a lot of people say it's like the more grown-up way of doing it, that you make sure you're getting your money back or most of it before you ever start even shooting. So those are two very different lanes. Um, and look, some of those actors, I mean, Nicolas Cage especially has done so many great indie films that that weren't that kind of model um in the sense of like he was just doing some of those super artistic and interesting regardless of like i think what the producers were able to offer based on foreign sales that movie mandy i thought was brilliant that's uh, a really cool like tripped out sci-fi horror shape of color or was it or call out of space i'm sorry that's a great movie i just saw that that one was fuck man fuck fuck did you watch that movie fuck yeah it's i thought it was sick so, okay, so here's my take on that movie because I got it recommended after seeing Mandy. As I said, I'm a very story-driven person. When I saw The Color Out of Space, I know it's H.P. Lovecraft. I thought the acting was great. The cinematography, the VFX was fucking incredible. But on a story level, I was like, what's truly the story? If I'm missing something other than like, this thing comes out of space, a bunch of crazy shit happens to this family on their farm. And you kind of just see nightmare after nightmare of dealing with something that I, I just, I had a hard time with that one. I got to tell you, I really had a hard time with that movie. I thought everything was great. Other than that, the story, I was like, am I missing something? Am I supposed to know what this is? And that is other than it's a nightmare. What did you take from that? Did you feel like there was. Well, so here's the way I feel all films the most important thing isn't the story, right? And and Tarantino will talk about this all the time. Is he'll say, my stories, you've seen a thousand times, right? It's like, Kill Bill is just a revenge story. That's just it. Right. They got me, I'm going to get them, right? Mad Max Fury Road. It's just a car chase for an hour and a half or whatever, two hours. That's what it is. They're coming after me. So, and so... And some some films are driven by story and they're driven by plot and other films are driven by other things. Yeah. This film to me is basically like taking acid. It's just yes. meant to be kind of um, a visceral experience. And all it is, is a destruction of a family. That's what yeah. it's a destruction. It's seeing a family implode uh, in a cosmic sense yep and so and so and 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 to that degree it's a tragedy right so and and so it's really like if you're on that ride if you're on that psychedelic horror destruction thing i mean like i said you can say the same thing with almost most simplistic horror movies right it's like halloween he's michael myers has come to kill you is there much of a story there not really but you're there for the that visceral experience so and it's yeah and i think with also with uh some of the newer uh kind of postmodern nick cage performances it's like 
I'm just all in on that. Like when he's going for it and you basically get, he's working with directors that I think allow him to just be in his zone. And, he, and if you're there for that frequency and you like that kind of the most out there version of uh, Nick Cage and I am, and like I said, because all the, the production elements are so high end, then I'm, I'm there for, I just, you know, certain things, I just, if they're fucking weird and crazy and well done, I'm kind of there for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's definitely a style and a genre that people really, really love. And I appreciate it from, for what they are. And I guess this, this is going back to what we were talking about, like different genres and different things that, that speak to, to different tastes. Like for me, I've noticed for film, I really am very plot. I'm very human and I'm very like story. That was, those are the movies that I, love the best and funny enough those are the ones that you know my my dad did the best making as well even though horror is so synonymous with like metal like people say like horror is like the heavy metal section of uh the movie business i have found that i'm not a go-to i watch a ton of horror movies there's some horror movies that i absolutely love especially ones they really create these like larger than life characters that the character kind of becomes so much of what the movie truly is um, but I like the ones that again, have more of like an interesting story and like, like the, I love get out for instance, cause I thought it is such a great way of mixing comedy and horror and like social commentary. And then having just like crazy, like plot twist, you know, um, well, get out, to but me. I have a lot of great story. Like get out would be a great, like if you just read it in a novel, it would be, yes. Great. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there, so there are things like that that are elevated and like i said it's just i and i can appreciate all the different like it's like music right there's just different subgenres, right sometimes i'm in the mood for a grindcore song and sometimes yeah. I'm for you know frank sinatra ballad or something and so i i kind of look at it that way and i just like good films and they can be a variety of kind of presentations totally yeah and there's a lot i mean horror is like such a um talk about a genre that is really have so many subgenres and great new filmmakers in it and, and producers it's really kind of taken flight so i feel like now there's so many different flavors of horror that everyone can really kind of find something that you know really speaks to them so it's definitely i think if you're a if you're a horror fan like i would think you're probably having the best time ever right now because there's so many great different styles of horror you know big studio ones to super like underground indie hipster horror like it's just it's really kind of taken flight, which I think is pretty exciting if, if, if you're you know, a horror fan. I mean, you're more of a horror fan than me. Do you feel like you have more to choose from now than in the history of movies? Believe it or not, I'm, I don't, if you can see kind of the stuff around me, I'm more of a action sci-fi kind of, uh, you know, that's my favorite stuff. And I'm not, I don't lean into horror more than any other genre. Like I have friends who like, they will watch any horror film. I just, I like good films. I, I look at, you know, Alien, for example, is like kind of half horror, half sci-fi. Yeah. First Terminator, same thing, kind of half horror, half, half, half sci-fi. So the definitely some of my favorite films. The Thing is one of, is one of my favorite films. Um, so I'm not really honed on that, that genre in, in particular. And I don't, yeah, so I, I'm just like, I just like good films. I really don't care what, what, what genre is. Yeah. Like, can I ask you just some, something about the, the themes within American Satan and now kind of going over to the new show, Paradise City, is there seems to be 
some amount of kind of reverence and fascination with kind of like the lore of rock and roll and the rock and roll lifestyle. Is that something that something that you personally embody or is it just something that you thought would be a good fodder to write about or to see it? So, so since American Satan and Paradise City do have a connection with the relentless, the band that the, the movies centers around and, and that is a big part of the show, though you don't need to see American Satan to watch Paradise City. Um, I mean, I love it if you do, but it's not, it's not necessary. It's just uh, American Satan is basically the backstory of the relentless, you know, American Satan is as, as a story, the rock and roll and all that stuff's in the background. I mean, that is yes, the world that it's in, but American Satan is, is a cautionary tale. It's about young people following their, you know, their dreams. And then, you know, the, the age old careful what you wish for. And, it, and it's really about how fame and lust and drugs and all these things can uh, end up taking control over someone who otherwise is, you know, an, an innocent and good hearted person. Um, so yes, it, does it take place in the world of rock and roll? Yes. Is, is, is the catalyst for the fame and the lust and the celebrity and all that coming from the music scene? Yes. But it's not, you know, it's not really like specifically a story of like, this is how we wrote our song and this is how we chose our album artwork. I mean, there's elements of that because it all comes from, you know, a, a real place in that regard. But like at the heart of it, that it's a cautionary tale about, um, and, and it doesn't have to be just in rock and roll. I mean, this, this happens with people, you know, there's like uh, startups, for example, there's all these, you know, you see like Firefest or you see some of these startups where these guys raise all this money. And then instead of making the app and delivering on their investors, they're renting yachts and throwing parties or being ridiculous. You see it in sports, you know, an athlete, blows up and is making millions of dollars and all of a sudden they ruin themselves because um they have too much too soon so that's really what the heart of that story is it's about you know best friends allowing um fame and and desire and celebrity to and money and all these things to kind of lose their innocence um paradise city is is real again it takes place in the world of modern rock and roll and there's supernatural elements to it but it's really about unorthodox families um and it's about kids growing up with one parent and that's really like as the series unfolds you realize that's so much of the heartbeat of the show is it's taking place in rock and roll but it's really about the family dynamic both from if you're related by blood versus if your friends and you work together and and all of the twists and turns that that come with those connections so you know i i found that like that's really an important thing for the types of, of movies and stories that i love is that you don't let the world control everything like again this is you know not to go back to rocking karate kid but my dad pulled this to me and, and i i really understood it when he explained that he's like people think Rocky's a boxing movie he goes it's not a boxing movie that's why the, the poster shows adrian and and rocky walking and and the original poster in their silhouette he's in his ring gear and she's in her outfit he goes it's a love story it's about a guy who wants to prove to the intellectual girl that works at the pet shop that he's good enough to take her on a date and that he's not a bum from the neighborhood you know he loses the fight but he wins the girl 
Like he doesn't beat Apollo in the first one. He loses, but he goes the distance. That was the magic. He didn't get knocked out. He went the distance and he won the girl and he won over the love of his neighborhood. Same thing with Karate Kid. People thinking it's like a, a karate movie or like a sports action movie. It's about a kid that doesn't have a dad that moves to, to California from the East Coast and he finds his father figure mentor and a quirky Asian maintenance man that works at the apartment building. That's the heart of that story. So even with the poster art, it's, it's not Daniel LaRusso versus Johnny Lawrence. The poster is Miyagi and Daniel looking at each other because that's the heart of the story. So um, when, when, I, when I learned kind of like his visions for those films and started looking at other films, you, re you realize like a lot of times that's what happens. And sometimes if they lean too heavily into the world, more so than the story itself, Sometimes that can work out well, but a lot of times that's what can create something that it falters um, and it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't connect. I mean, I would say like, I think the big, like, I don't know. I don't want to take up too much of the conversation and I know it's getting late, so I don't know if I should stop talking well, about no, it in a reference. Like, well, no, it's, it's fine. But the reason why I was bringing that up is because I hear what you're saying. But I think, in my opinion, aesthetically, that's what the the, the film, like I said, I haven't seen Paradise City yet, so I can't speak to uh, what, the, what the show is doing. But the film, American Satan, to me, really draws upon the culture of rock yeah. and, and heavy metal. And part of me was like, because, you know, you're referencing... Uh, Motley Crue, and you're referencing Guns N' Roses, but we're in, you know, 2000, you know, you know we're, in, we're in 2020 now, and part of me is like, if you're showing this to a certain group of young people, do they even connect to that? Is that, like, too old? Like, like I was wondering, I was like, would it almost make more sense to make that version of the story with, like, a SoundCloud rapper or something like this or whatever. Well, that's become the new rock and roll lifestyle. It's yeah. like what Lil Peep and means to these kids is probably similar to what, you know, some of our favorite fallen heroes mean to us from our generation. So again, that's kind of going the world. Like I think what you're saying is, is it more relatable and maybe from a business standpoint, <laughs> smarter? Yeah. I grew up with, but I wonder if I'm an 18 year old kid who's a, well, oh, that, that movie looks cool. It's like, well, I don't give a fuck about the rainbow. I don't care about Mick Mars. <laughs> you know, I don't, you know, cause it's, you know, it's just, I just, I just wonder, you know, if like, I, and I guess to a, to a broader sense, I'm almost asking this question about like, what does the kind of culture, rock and roll culture, how relevant is it? today because i feel like in places in other countries you go to the uk they care about rock and roll and the culture you go to finland they care about rock and roll and, and culture and even places like brazil things like that but i but america is so trendy right it's all about what's hot now you know kind of thing yeah i mean i i think what you're saying is true in the sense that specifically with pop culture and young people um it is yeah if paradise city was taking place in the world of of you know new school like soundcloud hip-hop would, would it be easier to to market and promote and to connect with young people i could see that argument being very true for sure 
Um, but also like, you know, I look, I didn't make, I didn't make this series for a long time because of vinyl and roadies. And I was like, I, and originally American Satan, there was a TV series called when the music's over and it was a totally different thing. And when vinyl and roadies came out, I'm like, you know what? I, um, I, there's tardy two shows. I just need to go make a movie and, and have supernatural elements into it and not worry about the show side of it. And then when, when those shows faltered, I don't think they falter because of lack of interest. I think a lot of people watched both shows and there were a lot of fantastic elements to both of those shows. And I actually think those shows got a much better, the second halves of them. And the problem was um, a lot of people didn't make it that far. Um, but I, I did this because I do believe that there is a very underserved audience that is very worldwide that want it. Um, and one thing I reference, and granted, this is a true story and, and one of, you know, the, the, the greatest band, one of the greatest bands of all time and one of the most fascinating stories is Bohemian Rhapsody. But a lot of people in Hollywood didn't think people were going to care about a Queen biopic and that, you know, they didn't know really what that was going to do. And that ended up being the biggest biopic at the box office ever. Yeah. This is very inspiring when we're, when we're fighting the rock and roll fight with you know hollywood it's like that was bigger than any politician musician athlete actor any story any biopic ever that was the biggest one and that was really like you know groundbreaking for so many gatekeepers to realize like wait like the singer of queen like this is the biggest thing ever for a biopic at the movie theater so that was that was inspiring and that's true. I don't know. They say write what you know. So I'm trying to keep it real in that sense too. No, like, of course. Of course. And I, I, I totally agree with that. I just, I just wanted some of your insights on that. So by the way, we are, we are getting a little late in this because like I said, you, me and you are one of these people, we could talk all day. Me and you have been at the, we've hung out and we'll just kind of go, we'll, we'll go in. So <laughs> I feel like me and you could talk whether it's movies or music, we could do this all day. Anyway, brother, um, before you go, can you let people know, when uh, when is Paradise City coming out? When can people watch it, and where can people watch it? Yeah, it 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 drops March twenty fifth on uh, Amazon Prime worldwide. You can also get it on iTunes and Google Play if you don't have Prime or you to, you prefer to watch your content that way. But yeah, it's a uh, world premiere on March twenty fifth, and you know we really hope uh, you guys enjoy it. And Doc, thank you for for having me on. I don't know where you're going to do a hard cut. That's going to take me into the outside here, but you'll figure it out in post. And um, I'm excited to talk more whenever you want. I just literally have to go and eat these fish tacos. They're, they're waiting on me, but this has been awesome. And um, you know, it's, it's great to, to catch up with you, man. And we, we definitely got to talk more though, because it's been way too long. Likewise, man. I've had, I've had a great time with you. It's been a long time coming and I uh, hope we'll do it again soon. And uh, you know, I'm all vaccinated. So, you know, you want to hang out, I feel safe. <laughs> I had it in January because my girlfriend's a COVID nurse. I think she said I didn't get it from her. I think I did whatever, but I actually had it in January. That's a whole other conversation. No, I had COVID and I got the, but I, I'm vaccinated as well. So oh, you did both. You got it. And you got, Oh, which one, which vaccine did you take? Pfizer. Pfizer. Nice. And you, you did two shots. Mm -hmm. Nice. Awesome, man. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll pick this back up. I'm excited. Take care, brother. Be well. Brother, thanks.
One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.